Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. She's a librarian, and my mom, and I'm me, and I'm a writer, sort of. And we read things, and then we talk about them into a microphone, and that's how a podcast gets made. Uh, today, we are on the penultimate chapter of The Sandman, uh, Volume 9, The Kindly Ones, written by Neil Gaiman, as every volume of The Sandman has been, with art by, mostly by Mark Hempel, but also by Richard Case, Disraeli, Teddy Christensen, Glenn Dillon, Charles Vess, Dean Ormston, who's experienced a little bit of a renaissance right now. He's the artist on uh, Black Hammer, which is a big critically acclaimed Dark Horse book that's happening right now. And Kevin Nowlin does this little intro Vertigo Jam piece. Uh, All the Colors are by Daniel Vazo, who I think has done most of the colors in Sandman from the beginning. Separations are by Android Images. I guess they switched to digital coloring at this point. Uh, Letters are by Todd Klein and Kevin Nowlin. And then all the covers are done by Dave McKean, as they always are. And I believe this whole volume is edited by Karen Berger and... I can't find the uh, credit for the assistant editor, but we'll figure it out. So, The Kindly Ones is volume 19. It was published... Volume 9. Volume 9. The Kindly Ones is volume 9. Shelley Roberg is the assistant editor. Sorry. Okay. It was published in 1996. It comprises the issues 57 to 69, so it's a very um, jam-packed volume. There's lots of issues in it. And those issues are from 1993 to 1995. So this is the final issue, the final volume in the Greek tragedy story arc that stands multiple volumes. So it, it's in the Doll's House, it's in Brief Lives, it's in Season of the Mist, um, yeah, the, Fables is... and Reflections, and then finally this one, The Kindly Ones. Yeah, this is the climax of the whole the whole thing. Sandman's kind of structured like a season of a HBO show, in that the climax happens in the second to last episode, and then we get a whole episode of Denouement. Which is what The Wake is, Volume 10. Yes. So, this one, I'm going to stay from the beginning, is my least favorite of the Sandman volumes. I have some problems with some parts of it. But there are parts that I really do like. So, this is the epi- This is the volume where it's building up for eight volumes. This is the, ep- the issue where Morpheus dies. There's no... Spoiler in that. That's a very clear thing that happens. Yeah. It's pretty clear, I mean, from the moment he kills Orpheus in Brief Lives, but specifically from the beginning of this story, it there's no way that it can go except to him dying. And that's like a major theme of this story is like, you know, we do what we must do because that's who we are. Like, that's the major theme of this is like, you're bound by who you are and your responsibilities. And you, if you could, you can't, like, it's an interesting thing because it basically sets up, like, 
this idea that fate exists, but what it is more than, like, a cosmic force is the sum total of your choices and, like, your nature yes. combined. I think part of the reason why I find that this is, like, my least favorite volume is there's a lot of stuff leading up to Morpheus' death. Morpheus' death is actually sort of like a non-event. It's, you know, it's kind of very low-key what happens. But that's how every Sandman story ends. But I also think, like, with the Kindly Ones, they're kind of built up to be, like, these legendary badasses, and then they show up and they're more, like, kind of petty bureaucrats that fight amongst each other. Mm -hmm. So I kind of felt like... I was expecting more from their final reveal of what, you know, of them. Because it's like, the kindly ones are the fates. They're the furies. Yeah. They're the three witches. They're the, I don't know how to pronounce this, Erinys? I think it's Erinys, Uranies, something like that. So, they're like, deities that are like, they're deities of vengeance. Yeah. And then they show up. And you can't really tell if they're being manipulated by what's happening in the overarching story or they're just not as powerful as we're led to believe that they could be. I think they're incredibly powerful. We just don't see them have like a fight with Morpheus. Like they destroy most of the dreaming. And in the end, instead of letting them kill him, he he just sort of dies. But I don't I don't know. I, I, I can see someone having a problem with that, but it didn't really bother me because, like like I said, that's how, that's how like, every Sandman story is. None of them have, like, a huge thing at the end. Like, it's always, like, Dream shows up and he destroys the scary, or God says give the key to the angels. Like, I don't love that there's always kind of an anti-climax, but, but you know what? I'm used, pretty used to it at this point, nine volumes in. But the kindly ones in Greek mythology, whatever version they are, the fates or the furies, they're specifically, their goal is specifically to avenge someone Mm. who has sworn a false oath or to avenge the death of a family member. Yeah. So you're kind of expecting some kind of like really bombastic revenge or vengeance that happens. I mean, it's kind of like when we get to the plot point, we talk about Lita She's like, her rage is building, and then it kind of just fizzles out. Well, because she realizes she was wrong. So let's get into the plot. Do you want to give, like, a quick, brief, overarching plot? Uh, sure. Um, Dream has known that he's going to die since the end of Brief Lives, and he's moping around. At the same time, Daniel Hall, the baby, who's been a figure in the book since Volume 2, is kidnapped by unknown forces and Lita goes on a becomes desperate to get him back and goes on a quest to find the Furies from whom she got her and her mother got their superpowers to ask them to help her get revenge on Dream who she is convinced kidnapped and murdered her baby and Dream prepares for his inevitable death and Lita goes on, like, a mystic, like, journey of the mind sort of thing. Also, Rose is there. But now, it's it's not clear to me 
Is there any proof that she has that she thinks Dream has kidnapped Daniel? Or does she just assume that because because Morpheus has sort of hinted that he'll see Daniel again, that he that her mind just immediately goes there? Yeah, well, what she knows of Dream is that he is a godlike being who appeared out of nowhere and killed her husband, has claimed her son, and her son disappears out of a locked room while her babysitter is mysteriously put to sleep with no sign of trauma or drugging i it's not an unreasonable conclusion to go oh yeah well the dream god who said he was going to take my baby used his sleep powers to make the babysitter go to sleep and then he took my baby yeah and i think that's okay so maybe the people the entities that stole the baby they framed they framed them well because what it turns out is the Baby thieves are Robin Goodfellow and Loki. And Robin Goodfellow seems to be motivated. It's, his motivations are the most unclear in the book. It seems like maybe he's just an agent of chaos. There's a little bit of an implication that he's, for some reason, acting on behalf of Titania. But Loki's motivations are super clear, which is he has a debt to dream and Loki doesn't like having debts. I think what's pretty clear once the story starts to unravel... That all of the people who are involved in the story, like Titana, Titania, Titania, Queen Mab, Queen Mab, and Odin, and all the other characters, they all in some way have been slighted by Morpheus. So it's not clear if it's like this very overwhelming conspiracy that they're all, all the parts are finally slotting together, or cosmically they're all inadvertently working towards the same end result yeah well yeah it's also like unclear if it is a big conspiracy or if it's just these two douchebags that everyone hates yeah so i mean once we find out that like robin goodfellow and loki because odin shows up and he's like we're you know we just realize that that's not the real loki and because he tricks them at the end of uh at the end of Season of Mist, Loki wants to send Susano in his place to be punished by the Underworld. And Dream, either being sympathetic towards someone who has been in captivity, or in the process of engineering his own suicide, puts an illusory Loki in Loki's place and allows Loki to go free. I think it's at this point established that it's been like five years since Season of Mists. Yeah. And so Loki's been out in the world, and now he's worried that he's going to have to pay the piper. And Odin is, shows up, and he's mad at Dream for tricking him and putting the false and letting Loki run free. Right. So I think that now, now everyone knows that, and we also know that Robin Goodfellow did not go back into the fairy realm after the Midsummer's Night Dream. Midsummer's Night Dream, which again is Dream's fault. Dream gives him the means by which he can escape his fate to return to fairy and hang out in the real world. I think it's very subtle, but when they show the police officers who come to him, there's two things. There's first the point. It's slightly offensive to me that Lita, who is a committed mother and spends all of her time with her child. The one time she goes out and she's on a job interview, her child is kidnapped. That's a very heavy handed mother but I, I think that what that's supposed to be is that they need for their plan to work. Lita needs to lose her mind. Yes. So they engineer the most horrifying situation they can imagine for, which is the one time 
Yes. She tries to do something nice and to, for herself and for them, both of them, it goes horribly wrong. But I also think it's, I mean, it's very subtle. So so when Robin Goodfellow, or the puck as he's called, as when the puck and Loki show up and they're disguised as the police officers, you can see subtle shaping that gives you a nod to who they are. So the one police officer has very big hair and it's kind of pointy and it sort of looks like Robin Goodfellow's like facial shape. And then, you know, they're... Well, they're both drawn in really exaggerated, inhuman ways. And the police officers basically look like less stylized versions of them. Like the police... I don't remember his name. Officer Pinkerton is the one that Loki impersonates or his like disguise he basically looks like Loki if he had a normal person's head and not like this weird, like, triangular, exaggerated carrot head that he actually has in his design. I think it's interesting, and I don't know if maybe I'm just looking at this and seeing them together, but the body shape and the head shape of Lucian also reminds me of Loki. Yeah, Lucian has a very angular design. I think part of that is the art. Mark Hempel draws most of this, and Mark Hempel has a very stylized very angular uh, style. It It's very, like, flat and, like, sort of thick-lined cartooning. It's, this is a weird example. It reminds me of, like, not of the... Com- it feels very of the time, but not comics art of the time. It reminds me of, like, just, like, general design and commercial art from that time. It looks like the kind of art that would show up in, like, a magazine ad... Aimed at Gen X. Yeah. Like, it, it, like if it's you've ever seen the branding edgy. for, like, OK Soda, it reminds me of stuff like that or, like, Fruitopia. Mm-hmm. It's got that vibe. It also yeah. reminds me of the art in the comic that uh, Monkey Bone is based on. Yeah. So, there's a lot of things that are happening in this volume. They're not necessarily happening in a linear way. So, at the same time that Daniel is kidnapped by Robin Goodfellow and Loki... Simultaneously, Morpheus is working to re to resurrect the Corinthian. Yeah. He wants to make a new Corinthian. And then there's also a plot point where Lucian and Merv are having a conversation. So there's lots of like small pieces that come together at the very end that are happening in a sort of linear time frame. Yeah. Well, we realize that by the end of the story is that Morbius is making preparations for his successor. Like, I think my suspicion is that the reason he's remaking the Corinthian is not for the reason he tells Matthew, which is like, oh, the Corinthian is supposed to be this, like, reflection of humanity and blah, blah, blah. I think he's making him to protect the next dream. Yeah, because at the same time that he's working to create the Corinthian... There's a period where Matthew is, after interacting with a lot of different ravens that are kind of coming to nest in the dreaming, and he starts thinking about like his like his life as a raven, and then Lucian tells him that there's other ravens. He's like, I think the twelfth raven. So he starts thinking about what happens to the ravens, and he starts thinking not about his own mortality, but his own like Future. Future. Yeah, but and the dream also retrieves a dream stone that becomes important. Like, he's doing all of this stuff to 
that seems like it's maybe just his regular work and then becomes clear that it's, uh, you know, it's preparations. Do you want to go issue by issue or do you want to cover, just cover the different it's, plot it's, lines? It's up to you. How do you think would be easier to talk about it? Well, there are 13 issues. Yeah, so let's just talk about the brief, the, the plot points. And I mean, we, we could to. go through them pretty fast. So, like, issue one is mostly... Uh, so uh, they don't have issue titles. They're just numbered after the prequel. Oh, I was going to say, let's talk real fast about the, the little prelude... Vertigo Jam story that's drawn by Kevin Nowlin. Because there's not much to that, but it's fun. It's it's a much better introduction to Sandman than that uh, Fear of Falling yes. one we talked about. Because what this is, is a guy, an unnamed figure, and it's told entirely in like second person from this guy's perspective, has a disturbing dream about goopy, faceless women eating him. And then he winds up in Dream's castle and travels around the castle and has... Little intro conversations with all the different dreams. So he talks to Lucian, and he talks to Merv. I think he talks to Kane. He talks... Well, they talk about Nuella, too. Yeah, and then at the end of the story, he winds up talking to Dream himself. And then he wakes up, and he can't really remember. I think it's interesting. I like this because... Yeah, he does talk to Kane and Abel. Um, Lucian really looks like Jack Nicholson in this. Yeah, I really like Kevin Nowlin's art. I think he drew one of the stories before, maybe the Marco Polo one. I don't remember. That might not be him. Uh, but his dream is the hottest one. He draws him like a little bit of stubble. It's very good. Uh, yeah, his his art style fits really well for Sandman. It's like uh, a slightly... It's more cartoony than like the Brian Talbot and like type stuff, but it's not quite as uh, stylized as like... Um, Kelly Jones or, or people like that. Yeah, his Lucian looks like Jack Nicholson. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a solid little intro. Like, th- that makes way more sense. If you read that in, like, a free anthology or whatever, you I think you'd be way more likely to pick up Sandman than that weird story about the, the playwright. Yeah, and I think it sort of shows the importance of the sort of... I mean, it's... The Sandman series is enriched. I mean, there's, the, like, the overarching story, which is very grim, but it's enriched by these sort of vignettes of the secondary characters. Yeah. And this sort of shows you. It shows you Merv, and Merv's, like, you know, bitching. It's the same thing. He's, like, a guy who's always bitching about his work, and Lucian in his library, and Cain Nabel, and their weird, kind of sad, you know, yeah. relationship where they're brothers, and, you know, they have... He literally has a contract to murder his own brother, like... Yeah. But so actually, part one of The Kindly Ones, what happens in this issue is uh, Matthew travels through Dream's Castle trying to find... Asking the different dreams what happens to the Ravens, and no one will give him a straight answer, and no one knows. Uh, And then when he gets to Dream, Dream will not tell him and sends him to Eve's cave. And then Lita is... She's got a friend, new, a friend named Carlo. I don't think we've seen before. Well, it start the the part one starts out with three women having tea time. Yeah, this story is bookended by the kindly ones having tea and reading fortune cookies. Do you want to read the? Could you? Do you have the fortune cookie they read at the beginning of this? Let's see if I can get to it. She says, "A king will forsake his kingdom." Life and death will clash and fray. The oldest battle begins once more. Yeah. And then her response is, 
we've had that one before, haven't we? And the other crone, the crone says, it's definitely familiar, dearie. Yeah, so that foreshadows the events. Uh, but then, like I was saying, Lita has a friend. She's stressed out. She goes on a sort of half-date, half-job interview at Lux, which is Lucifer's bar. Mazakin is working the door and working as a waitress. Uh, Lucifer is playing the piano. And then she's not having a great time. And then she has, like, a feeling that something's wrong with Daniel. She tries to call home and there's no answer. She rushes home and finds out that Daniel is missing. Yeah. This is also the episode where Morpheus revives the Corinthian. And then, you know, Lucian's kind of, like, asking him, like, why are you doing this? And he's pretty much just like, oh, I think I can do it better. And, you know, this... There's this implication that the Corinthian that we met in the issue where he has the serial killer conference was not the first Corinthian. I think that was. I think that was. That the, was the first Corinthian. I think there were other dreams that occupied the Corinthian's place, but that was the first one because when he puts the fragment from that Corinthian in this one, he like remembers stuff from like the flashback story with destruction. Yeah, because he has two little tiny skulls, and in the issue with the Corinthian, when he destroys him he literally shrinks him down yeah and then he puts him in his pocket. do you think that in this when the corinthians eyeballs are talking is that supposed to be the old corinthian talking i don't know because he takes the eyeballs and he keeps them and he does that later on you as you you know yeah. as the story unfolds so it makes it seem like he can take the eyeballs and then put them in his Mouth, eyes. eye, mouths, whatever, and then he can absorb some energy from that. Yeah, but when uh, there are parts in this story when the Corinthian talks through his eye mouths, and it has different lettering than when he right. talks through his yeah, so regular it's mouth, almost like he has a, a personality that he takes in by putting them. It, this is an interesting Corinthian. I mean, obviously, he's a younger-looking Corinthian. He's more like a teenage bad boy and less of, like, you know. This is also clearly the Corinthian that we see in the vision in Destiny's Garden. Yes. In Brief Lives. Yeah. So, issue two, uh, the police arrive. We we know that one of them is Loki. Luke Pinkerton is what mm -hmm. he calls himself. And he answers some questions but doesn't really do a ton of police work. And in, meanwhile, in the dreaming, uh, Cloricon comes back to retrieve Nuella, and she does not really want to uh, yeah. go with him. But Morpheus gives her a necklace, which is, gives her one boon. Yeah. Also, Cloricon, in classic Cloricon style, fucks up real bad and strays from the path in Dream's castle and vomits a wild heart, like a giant elk that is apparently his nemesis and he's gonna have to kill it someday yes yes of course and nuella berates him for being so stupid and it's like it it, it jives with everything we've seen from him he's like, like a guy who is bound by impulse and is constantly dealing with the consequences of his poor impulse control i thought when i saw the police officers pinkerton and the other one i thought that Loki was making some kind of comment about Constantine. 
because he has sort of blonde hair and the yellow-ish kind of trench coat, and he has the band, you know, it's a bandaid on his yeah. face. But now I'm thinking that maybe they they're sort of their versions of what they think police are like are like stereotypes that they've seen on television shows. Because one's like supposed to be like this gritty detective, and the other one looks like he's like a cop that's like in a mafia movie. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other thing that really happens in this issue is Lita has a dream where the kindly ones visit her, and they tell her she's already met Daniel's kidnapper. She doesn't realize that they're talking about the police, and she this is what begins to lead to her suspecting that it is Morpheus. Right, and I think you're right. I think that even if Loki and Goodfellow are purposely doing this to drive her to insanity, to get her to the point where she tries to get the kindly ones to help her, that they're sort of, because they're both tricksters, and, you know, they can't be forthright. They can't just say, like, why don't we kidnap this poor baby and then we can drive Morpheus to do what he needs to do. They have to do it in a very weird way that's sort of very circuitous. Yeah. Well, they're they they're, you know, manipulators. They they know that they know I guess the question is how do they know that Dream killed Orpheus? Yeah, that's that's I don't know I don't think that's a big secret because Delirium keeps running around saying Oh, you know, when Orpheus died was the day that I ate all those cherries and I got my dog. Yeah. There's also the concurrent plot point of where she's looking for her dog. Uh, I think that comes up in the next issue when that starts. She's looking for uh, Barnaby. There's also a background character uh, that shows up, I think, in issue one or two. He's sort of like a loopy old man who tries to give Daniel a rose. Or tries to give him, like, a flower. And he recurs throughout. And it's pretty clear. And the second he shows up and then Delirium shows up, you're like, oh, okay, these characters are going to be connected in some way. So, uh, I think Lita also in the previous issues is when she has, like, a vision of Daniel in the fire. And we see that in the next issue, three, that um, Robin Goodfellow and Loki put Daniel in a fire. And they're, like, trying to burn out his mortality? Yeah, because I think they know. I they think... know he's connected to Dream. They know a lot of stuff. And that's, like, I think it's... Un- I guess the idea is just that they're master manipulators. They can get information and it's being freely given away by, like, people like Delirium. But I think there's supposed to be an implication early on that maybe they're working with Desire. I think it it's really implied that... I. In some way, they're either all knowingly working together or they don't. Yeah. Or they're working, they're being manipulated by desire and they're all working together in that way. Uh, yeah, so they're running out the mortality. Uh, Delirium is looking for her dog. Uh, at the end of this issue, Lita gets a picture of Daniel's body. All burnt up, delivered by the two police officers that are Loki and Goodfellow. You know what's interesting to me, though, is the part where they put Daniel in the fire. He has a phoenix feather. Yeah, and he just found, apparently. I mean, he's connected to resurrection. I think the universe knows he's going to be the next dream already. Yeah, so I wonder if he, like, has almost, like, a power. I don't know if the Or does he get that when he goes to the dreaming in uh, Fables and Reflections? 
the phoenix feather. Is that a thing? I don't remember if that's a, 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 a detail that they're like calling back to or not. That might he might get it there because when he's with Cain and Abel and they're having that little party, mm-hmm. he plays with a lot of things that he finds in the dreaming. I think that is where he gets the feather. They reference that story a bunch because later on he recognizes Goldie and Cain and Abel talk about him. Matthew mentions having met him and he meets him in that story. But the big centerpiece of issue three is the return of my boy and yours, Mr. Hobgatling. Yes. He I is... think it's also interesting that there's this running um, visual motif of first it's like a ball of yarn mm-hmm. and then it's a string and then when they're putting him in the fire, he has he's holding like a long string that he has picked up somewhere. So this whole motif of the kindly ones and their that sort of fates where they're weaving the life. You know, at one point one of the kindly ones is actually knitting a scarf, which she's referring to as something that she's making, like referring to someone's life. So then you start to see this string that sort of throws through all of the volumes and you realize that, you know, their fates are now slowly after nine volumes coming together into one cloth. Yeah. And so we find out that Hob is mourning uh, a lost love, a woman that he had grown attached to who has died in a sudden and violent car accident. And him and Dream have one last, like, sad boy late night drinks together. And Dream offers to give Hob, like, a recurring dream of her, of his lost wife. And Hob declines that. And he's like, hey, are you, like, dying, my friend? Please, like, are you gonna, is this the last time we're gonna talk? And Dream is sort of like, maybe, sort of. I think he... And also they go to a pub that's called Faith, Hope, and Charity. And they show the sign in a very heavy-handed way that has three women on it. Yeah, there's lots of recursions of three in the Triple Goddess. Uh, And And then, well, then Destiny has a weird thing that happens to him. Where he's in his garden and he starts to see multiple manifestations of himself. And he realizes that there's multiple timelines and they're slowly coming together. Yeah. Yeah, he's real weird in this story because you, you see multiple versions of him acting simultaneously. Uh, and then at the end of this issue, Lita snaps and becomes completely convinced. After she gets the picture of Daniel burnt up, she snaps and becomes completely convinced that Morpheus killed her, kidnapped and killed her son and that she needs to find the furies and get them to kill him so then we're also reminded about what's going on with the other siblings we were reminded that desire is giving her themselves a timeout yeah they close off their domain yes again implying maybe that they have a hand in what's happening with loki and robin goodfellow but it's never directly confirmed and i don't think that's what's going on yeah so she's she or he is still at the point giving themselves a timeout. And Despair is hanging out with her rats and kind of having herself like some quiet time. And then Delirium at some point turns herself into a bunch of small fish. She comes she is has turned herself into some small fish. She comes back from being some small fish and realizes she don't know where her dog is. Mm-hmm. So realizing that it was so successful when she asked her siblings to help her find 
their missing brother, she's going to ask her siblings to help her find her missing her, dog. Her missing dog. Who was her brother's dog. Yes. And then issue four has uh, Remyon go to Lux to talk to Lucifer. And it's never clear what he's exactly he's trying to do. It seems like maybe he's trying to talk Lucifer into coming back. But then Lucifer just fucks with him and makes him so mad that he leaves before he ever gets around to saying the thing that he wanted to say. Uh, I like the visual contrast between Lucifer and Remiel in this. They're both... Lucifer is wearing, like, a black, like, robe with no shirt and sunglasses. And he's clearly, like, hungover and he's got, like, wavy red hair. And Remiel is this, like, baby-faced guy with long blonde hair in an immaculate white suit and tie with no shoes. It's pretty clear that this is, like, the visual cues for how angels and demons look in the Constantine movie is pretty clearly drawing on this kind of thing. It's also very similar to the depiction of Lucifer that's in the TV series. Because, I mean, all the, like, hot points, like, Mazakin is there with him, he works at Lux. He plays the piano. He's very hedonistic. He likes to drink and, you know, have sex and have these, like, bombastic parties. Like, that's all sort of nodded to in the TV series. Yeah. He basically calls Remiel a coward and a fence-sitter and uh, taunts him about, like, how did he react? How did you react when God condemned you to take my place, even though you didn't do anything? And... Remiel gets really mad and leaves and goes back to talk to Duma. And it's pretty clear their relationship is getting strained because Duma still does not speak. Right. Uh, also, this is the part where Lucifer basically sort of takes credit for Morpheus's fate. Implying that, like, this is an extension of, like, the curse he essentially laid on him when right. he gave him the key. Right. Um, it's also the episode where Lide gets the photograph. And it's, no, that's the end of the previous issue. Uh, but it's, this issue opens with her out on the street already. Like, when she shows up in this issue, she's out on the street and she's already on her psychic quest. She meets a bunch of people uh, who we see them, how they look in the real world. And she sees, like, a sort of spiritual right. story version of them. They all embody different archetypes. So she meets, like, a woman on the street who gives her, uh, like, a penny or, or gives her some change. But she sees her as this, like, questing princess who's right. going to save her lover from, I think it's a witch, right? From, like, some tower. She meets a cat. The and cyclops. She meets a cyclops. She, oh, yeah. She meets a guy with glasses and she sees him as a cyclops. Uh, she meets a cat that she sees as, like, a cat person with the eye patch. And they all sort of guide her along this quest that we know is going to eventually lead her to the Furies. But in reality, she's just, like, walking around the streets of... She's in L.A., I think? But she's, like, clearly degrading. Yeah, she's very clearly in L.A. And then we find out that... uh, The babysitter, who was put to sleep when Daniel was kidnapped, is... Is is Rose. Rose Walker. Yeah, we hear earlier that um, Daniel calls her Rosie. And then we find out that it is Rose Walker... And she's visited by Carla and really no information. Like, Rose doesn't really have any information and they have, like, a conversation. And... Rose claims that she's writing a book. She's writing a book about instances of the triple goddess in sitcoms. Yes. 
But she, before Carla shows up, she has a dream where she's with an ex-lover, and the doll's house is there, and <laughs> Abel appears on her dresser and gives her a cryptic message that she needs to go back to England to where her grandmother was sleeping. Right, because her mother wants, her grandmother wants to give her back her heart, she yeah. says. Well, that's the thing. Uh, Unity takes the heart in the doll's house so to save Rose from being destroyed for being the Vortex. Right. And now she wants to get her heart back. Uh, also, we find out on this that Carla's grandmother was like an early black film star. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's not ever really important, but it's a nice character detail, I guess. So then, then Lita decides she's going to look for the kindly ones, and she comes across two women. We're very clearly supposed to visually... Recall Zelda and Chantal, the spider women from the doll's house. Mm -hmm. But they're not them. They are very slowly revealed to be the two surviving Gorgons. Right. And they're, they're two sisters mm -hmm. who's looking for their missing third sister. Yeah. And that's why they try to, to use their, their skills to convince Lita to stay and become their sister. So, you know, they send her out to the garden where she meets the three-headed snake to get the golden apples. And they're constantly trying to get her to drink the water. Mm -hmm. So finally she realizes that that's not what she wants to do and she's trying to move on. She wants to find the kindly ones. Because like you had mentioned earlier, she knows that the Furies, she doesn't necessarily, it's not clear if she knows what they can do. But she thinks that they can do something for her. I think she understands them as the source of her mother's power. And doesn't quite understand the mythological significance of them. Yeah, and I think this is also the episode where Morpheus, digging through his junk drawer, finds the two Corinthian skulls and decides he's going to recreate the Corinthian. Yeah. Uh, Merv and Lucian have a conversation about a dream. Merv does the thing where he talks shit on... Morpheus again, and then Morpheus appears behind him. Yes. Uh, he says this great line where he says, It was always been the... Well, I'll do it. I'll, let me do a voice. He says, It has always been the prerogative of children and halfwits to point out the emperor has no clothes. But the halfwit remains a halfwit, and the emperor remains an emperor. Except he doesn't, because he's gonna die. Yes. But I guess it sort of shows that Merv is more perceptive than he's given credit for. He's always sort of this curmudgeonly kind of character. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. This is, also, they have a conversation about Nuala being gone, and they're all... Merv pretends like he doesn't care. Matthew's bummed out. Lucien is bummed out. But I think they really liked her being in the castle. And I yeah. think she liked it, too, because even though she was upset about her glamour being removed, I think Morpheus was the first person who accepted her as... The entity that she was, not some kind of, you know, someone's sister or um, some kind of emissary of the queen. She was just herself. She looked the way that she did. And she becomes, at some point, just comfortable being in her own nature. And I think that's why she's not, you can tell right from the beginning when her brother shows up, she's not happy to see the brother. And she's really. Well, would you be happy to see that guy? 
He kind of sucks. He's definitely breaks like something in your house. He's the kind of guy. He shows up and breaks your toilet. Or you know, like he that. shows up. He hasn't been around for fifty years. He throws up his own his nemesis in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're like I like that we get like we were talking about with the supporting cast. Like we get them talking to each other and talking about like what has happened with the other characters who are part of the supporting cast. And then this issue ends with Morpheus recreate, fully recreating the Corinthian and putting the old Corinthian skull into him, imbuing him with a part of his his past. Which is like, I like that a lot because it's, he wants to make the Corinthian again. He doesn't just push the reset button. He lets this Corinthian learn from the mistakes he and the last Corinthian made with it. And it foreshadows what's going to happen with him. I also, I mean, this is also the ending where... You realize that Lita realizes that she's with the sisters and they're trying to, like, metamorphosize her into Medusa. Yeah. So as she's drinking the water, she's also slowly transforming in this dual world where she's growing these little tiny snakes in her hair and she realizes what's going on. That's the beginning of the next issue. Yeah. But I think what's happening to Lita is... Her, it's sort of like a duality of what's happening. There's the the activity that's happening in... I don't know if she's in the dreaming world or she's just in this sort of nebulous world where she's interacting with these characters. But then there's also the real world where she's almost like a homeless person and she's out of her mind. She's in this like fugue state where mm-hmm. she's... But she's still in the city. She's still in Los Angeles. And she's still, like, she ends up being part of the homeless community. And they think she's just a crazy woman. A preternaturally strong. Yes. Crazy woman. Yes. Uh, I also like, that's a detail I like early on when Carla calls the police about um, Lita. She's like, oh, yeah, she's been through a lot of stuff, you know. She used to dress up in costumes. Like, that idea where if you lived in a world with superheroes, but, like, you kind of treat superheroes like a weird curiosity, where it's like, yeah, he went through a phase where he was, like, a this superhero. This is the part that confused me and made me think that Loki was directly referencing Constantine, because one of the things that the well, first there's the photo, that when she looks at it, she sees a picture of her son being burned up. And then when Carl looks at the picture... You can tell that there's some kind of glamour on the picture and it goes back to just being a picture of Daniel. But when she goes to the police and she starts to tell the actual police about it and she shows them the card that he gave her. When she sees the card, she's obviously seeing a business card with the police officer's name and information on it. But when she gives it to the real police officer, all he sees is a yellow piece of paper. Well, she... And this is the thing that Constantine does. This is one of his tricks. Yeah. Where he can, like, manifest, like, information on playing cards. I don't think that it's, like... I don't know if Loki is doing a reference to Constantine, but I definitely think, like, uh, Constantine is supposed to be part of the sort of the same archetype as Loki. There is another uh, Neil Gaiman story that we might cover at some point called Books of Magic. And Books of Magic has this thing in it where one point of the story, they travel far into the future where, like, humanity is gone... And there are these beings that exist who are, like, embody archetypes. And they're based on the major arcana. Uh-huh. And the fool one looks like Constantine. Like, Neil Gaiman has this idea that, like, 
Constantine is like this trickster archetype. So I could see him and Loki doing the same thing, but Loki is evil makes sense to me. Yeah, so Lita, she realizes what's happening with the Gorgons and she leaves. And continues on her quest to find the Furies. Carla goes to the police to try to tell them about the fake police officers and about her missing friend who has a missing baby and really goes nowhere with them. They're they're very unhelpful. And then she returns to Lita's apartment and finds the picture of the burnt-up Daniel, and it changes into a picture of a not-burnt-up Daniel. She sees past the illusion, but then it burns her hand. And then she goes to talk to Detective Pinkerton, and he reveals himself to be Loki and kills her. Right. And I think, like, this also, I mean, there's a lot, there's... There's lots of references to the triple goddesses. There's lots yeah. of references to the three. But then you also start to see now, as a counterbalance to that, there's a lot of references to things that are in sets of two. Yeah. And you, and you see that, like, with the Gorgons. There's two Gorgons. And then you see with two Corinthian skulls. And then Loki. And... Can I tell you the first time I read this story, I was 100% convinced that uh, Morpheus was going to kill one of the kindly ones before he died. I thought that's what that was setting up. Because we get was, three female main characters and one of them dies. Like, we get Rose, Lita, and Carla. Um, none of them are the crone, but it is clear that, like, Lita is the mother and one of them is the maiden. I think that even Rose might actually be the crone. Yeah. Because at some point, Carla very clearly says, you are older than we yeah, thought. Yeah. And that would make sense because Lita would be... She's the mother. Yeah, so that's her whole deal, is she's the mother. Yeah, that would make sense if Carla was the maiden and Rose was the crone. And then they kill Carla, and I was 100% convinced one of the kindly ones was going to die. It doesn't happen. That's interesting, too, because when Rose is in her own story, she is obviously the maiden in that story. Well, she meets and has a meeting with a bunch of crones. Right, right. But But so, this is also the point in the story, I think, where... Uh, Rose decides to go to England to investigate the, right, right. the so, investigation she got from Abel. So you realize... The instructions, I mean. So I guess it opens up where she's visiting this old, gaunt, sick woman. She's visiting someone who is in hospice care and has HIV. And I think it's a little fucked up because it definitely, I think, wants you to think it's Hal. And then it turns out that it's Zelda... And Chantel is already dead. Yeah, and I, this is the one I said I had a problem with because I felt like she was a gay character and she was given HIV. Yeah, it's also, there's been like three lesbian couples in the series and... Something terrible happens to every single one. Well, the only ones, only, well, something, that, what's their, what are their, I can't remember their names. Foxglove and Hazel are fine, like... Well, they have this conflict. They have a conflict, but they it is resolved. But the other two get put in the meat grinder. Yeah. What, uh, I can't remember her name. Rose's girlfriend who dies in 24 hours, and like, is one, abusive, and two, dies. And then Zelda and Chantel are both killed. Yeah. And it's a bummer. And this feels a lot like the death of Carla and also the way he, what he does to Zelda here reminds me a lot of what he does to Wanda in Game of You. Yes. It just feels like 
I mean, the Carla death makes sense from a storytelling standpoint. I actually don't have that much of a problem. It does bum me out that she's one of the few non-white characters in Sandman and she gets killed. But the 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 death of Zelda is gratuitous, I think. It doesn't... We talked about this before we started recording. And I was like, yeah, this is what being woke was like in the 90s. Like, you just put the thing in the story. Here's a character with AIDS. And it's like, are you saying anything about that? Is this like a positive or negative? No, it's just here. It's just here and there's a character and they have AIDS and they die. And it does a weird, like, we'll get to it later. It does a weird, like, fake out where it reveals, like, actually, she didn't get AIDS from gay sex. It was just from poor regulation on kidney transplants. Well, it's also spreading misinformation about... Well, they acknowledge that the regulations are better now, but it's, it's weird. I... It's kind of like when they decided to do, like, this, uh, you know, the more you know, feminist awareness kind of message. And it was like when Calliope was being held as, a, like, a sex prisoner. Like, that's not how you talk about feminism. It's the book, too. Yeah. Later. It's so weird. Um, it's weird that they bring reference Calliope later. But uh, the Calliope story is even weirder when you take into account that, like, she's Orpheus's mom. <laughs> Uh, but... Yeah, it's kind of like a misstep and a weird... And it's not even... I thought about it. I was like, is this weird and a misstep and it makes me uncomfortable because in the current climate I'm thinking about this? But I think I would feel that same way about this in the 1990s. Yeah. It's just like... a Of all the characters to do this to... Here's my understanding of it. One, I... Th- I think it's there because he wants the fake out, which I don't understand, and I, I don't think that's... That feels weird and unnecessary. Two, I kind of get it, because it's like... He wants a character that is dying in a mundane way to reflect what's happening with Dream. He could have gave her cancer. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He could have gave her cancer. It feels weird and exploitative to to give her AIDS. It feels like he was like... Because it makes sense for it to be... Like, it's somebody that Rose is connected to. He doesn't want it to be Hal, because... He wants Hal to show up later in the story. Barbie's storyline is already completed. Gilbert's gone. Ken is boring. Who is left? Either her mom or one of the spider women. But, I mean, she could have just been dying in general, like, wasting for, like, losing her life partner. Yeah, no. I think that giving her aid specifically was bad. I think it was done from a point of, like... I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on this important issue. It's the mid '90s, you know. We're we're post like Reagan and whatnot, and like character people get AIDS. You know, rent's gonna be really popular. But you don't need to put that in an ep- issue where the main bulk of the issue is the Corinthian telling Matthew why, since they both love to eat eyeballs, they have something in common. It seems like a weird mashup of like. You know, the person in hospice and what do serial killing, eyeball eating monsters and crows or ravens have in common? Plus, this existential crisis where Nuella realizes that she's not happy being a fake fairy. She wants to be herself. I don't mind all those things together. Literally, my my problem is just don't... She didn't need to have... One, I feel like you could have figured out a way to not kill off the lesbians... But also, if you're going to do it, she shouldn't have had AIDS. And it's a bummer, too. Like, I guess it gets me to on a certain extent because I like those characters. Like, it's sad to see 
I mean, Zelda again, and she's like dying. It's also the same issue where Carla gets burned up in a car, which is a very harsh way to go. Yeah, this is a very. This is the the most the comic feels like. Oh yeah, this is happening in like 1995 or whatever it is, 1993. So the uh, like you mentioned, the other two things that happen in this issue are Dream teams up Matthew and the Corinthian and sends them to go find Daniel, and they have a little witty banter about like how they're not too different and there's like an interesting tension with like how much is this corinthian like the last corinthian is matthew in danger like is he gonna go rogue on this mission uh but i really like their interactions and they interact more throughout this issue and it's uh pretty cool also dream shows up wearing a toga and no shirt yeah but that kind of goes right into the heavy into the greek yeah, yeah. tragedy and then the other thing that happens is Noella goes back to Fairy and it sucks and she hates uh, being there and everyone's fake and she has to go to a party and a bogger is tormenting her and reading her mean poetry. Uh, and he kind of looks like Robin Goodfellow, but like a Funko Pop version of him. Yeah, and I think it turns out very clearly that it ends up, you figure out later on that it's actually her brother just fucking with her. I think it's interesting because it's sort of like Noella sort of shows this sort of concept that the fairies aren't, they either don't care or believe in free will or they're not respected. They're not respectful of people's yeah like decision to choose their own paths because they're all sort of, they're obsessed with like, you know, the appearance of things. They're obsessed with like the propriety of things and like, even, like, when she decides that she doesn't want to look a certain way, the queen gets upset and puts a glamour on her. Well, that, that happens. Because they don't even want to look at her true nature. Yeah. That so hap- even among themselves, they have to put on that persona that they're... Yeah. That happens later. This is just, she goes to the fairy and she's sad. Uh, I think, like, the idea is it's sort of drawing a com- a comparison between... Uh, Titania and Morpheus because for this story to work we have to know that Morpheus is a good king and the idea is like Morpheus treats his subjects like they're people Titania treats her subjects like they're furniture and I think it's very clear to her that Noella when she realizes that I think this next issue is very clear I mean you could, this is 100% you can tell it's in the 90s because the way that Rose is depicted oh yeah she looks like she's you know, very, like, rave culture influence. She has, like, pigtails, and she's wearing, like, a tight black shirt, like, ringer, black ringer to you with, like, white sleeves and a denim skirt and, like, sneakers and, you know, big tall stockings. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's very 90s. This is the most focused issue. It's entirely about Rose's trip to England. And she goes there. She meets up with the nephew of her old solicitor Mm -hmm. who drives this like dumb looking restored car and he takes her to the home where unity had lived and she meets this guy who we later learn is going all the way back to volume one he's burgess's turns out life partner life partner i guess they're not married because they're like that's not a thing yet but he, yeah, he's the, that dude uh, with the blonde hair who, like, tries to get him to stop being a magician before Dream shows up. That's this guy. Right, and now he's aged 
And we know that he is in a dream state like Unity was in. And what is the his partner's name? What is the... the Jack? No. No, Jack is the... Is the uh, this Paul. Paul McGuire and then Alex Burgess is his right? And Alex Burgess is in a dream coma. Yeah. So ever since Dream condemned him to constant waking, he has been in a coma in the uh, in the home. And they touch on the idea that like he essentially went to sleep. He went to sleep the same day that Unity woke up. Right. So she tells everyone that she's writing a book about her grandmother. She's mm-hmm. always writing this mysterious book. Yeah, she's a writer, but she never writes at any point, which is totally relatable. I, that's every writer, <laughs> except for the really successful ones who are always writing. But she, how could she be a writer not writing when Twitter wasn't invented? Now? Yeah, what is she doing? So what is she doing? She's with just reading Spin magazine, <laughs> maybe. Listening she's, to the Stone Roses. She's drinking her Fruitopia. Uh, so she goes to the home. She hangs out. She meets a bunch of kindly old ladies who are. Are they the kindly ones, or are they just they definitely referencing them? Recall them because it's like they're all old, but like one is clearly the oldest, and then there's one that's like she's kind of like a plump little old lady, uh, and she had a lover who was a black soldier in World War II who died in an accident, uh, and then the other one hates men, and then. <laughs> They uh, hang out and she plays board games with them and they tell her this uh, long fairy tale that clearly it ties into all of the themes that are going on here. Because so what the fairy tale is about is this rake in the classical sense, you know, a rakish man, a piece of shit dude, yeah. con artist, uh, gets this beautiful woman to agree to be, you know, to have sex, to with, have sex with him and the promise is that if... The first church they set foot in, he will marry her. And if he doesn't, the worms will eat him and his children will grow wings and fly away. And he refuses to marry her and he kills a lady to steal her house. And then one day his children grow wings and he thinks that... Well, she she tells him that the children have grown wings. Yeah, he doesn't believe her and he kills her. The children show up and they have wings they turn on him. The wife, like, resurrects as this long-fingered zombie. She's very clearly supposed to recall what uh, Lita is turning into. Right. She chases him, and then he ends up in a grave, and she metamorphosizes into this worm monster that very clearly has the face of Loki, and he has the face of Dream, and she eats him. And it, it's there's these... All of these themes of, like, uh, you know, the inevitability of fate, the living up to your past uh, misdeeds, not paying your debts, and the wrath of a woman scorned all show up in this. I think it's also interesting, too, at the one point when they're talking to Rose, there's three panels where you just see the eyes of the three women. And the first one says, as mothers, we wake them from nothingness to existence. And then at the second one, with the younger woman, she mm. says, as maidens, we wake them to the joys and miseries of adulthood. And then finally, the third crone, the woman in the nursing home says, and then when their time's up, you know, we claim them. So mm-hmm. they're sort of like, that's what made me think that maybe they were the kindly ones. I think it's they one kind of, those... of take on different manifestations throughout the series. 
So maybe I was just looking for them to be disguised and interacting with the characters because other than when they show up in the dreaming and Lita or when Lita's talking to them, they don't really interact with anyone during the whole sequence. Yeah. So I don't, I think there's this thing where they're not the kindly ones in disguise. I don't think, but I think they are playing the role of the triple goddess. I think those are different things. There there's the kindly ones can show up as themselves, but different characters can play that role as the like fates and oracles when they are in that configuration at different points throughout the series. And so I think that's what's happening there with the old women and their fairy tale. And that's the whole, Oh, the end of the issue, she visits, uh, Burgess in his bed with Paul, who's very nice to her throughout the, the story. And she gives, she leaves, uh, uh, Burgess with a ring that belonged to her grandmother. Yes. And then he tells her, if you have time, stop by my house. He's, oh, he's, he was pretty insistently through the whole issue trying to get her to visit him in his house. Yeah, the gatehouse. That's the gatehouse. He wants to take her to the. This is an old mansion that he lives in. Yeah. Uh, it's not like a sinister thing. No. I think we're saying, saying that he continues, but he's not, it's not like he's trying to lure her there. He just keeps, he mentions it a couple times. Right. Because that's Burgess's castle, his mansion. Yeah. Where Dream was actually kept. Uh, yeah. So the next issue, uh, our girl's back, Thessaly, so she's calling herself Larissa now. I think it's kind of heavy-handed that she's in a taxi and they have to show this like close-up of the virgin mary like we get it like we totally get this this is about like female goddesses we know what's going on i also like my first thought was like oh snap she's back but i i kind of knew she was going to be back at some point yeah she's a big jerk like she was before she in order to she in order to get the taxi driver to stay she pays him with half of a hundred dollar bill, like torn up, and is like, "I'll give you the other half when I come back." And she goes to this sort of homeless encampment where Lita is sleeping, and they're like, "Okay, oh yeah, you're the person you want is over there. She's in scary strong. Please take her away." Yeah, I think this when Thessaly shows up, it's this is kind of like the most visually classic reference to Greek tragedy. Like, you see her, and then when, when they depict the, the homeless men, they're around the fire, and they're almost like the chorus, you know? Then yeah. You, like, the imagery is very classic, like, for a Greek tragedy. She gets into the taxi cab, and she uh, cradles Lita's head in her lap. Yeah. Uh, and Lita sees her as this, like, white bird that is guiding her. Uh, well, this is when it really like is very clear that there's a dual journey. There's the journey that's happening in the, you know, it, it may be in her mind. It may be in some kind of like split world, but also what's happening to her in the real world. And it's the same, it sort of mimics the same thing with Princess Barbie. Now Thessaly has Lita, has her physical body. Yeah. While she's in this fugue state, and then she has to care for her, which is what she did, what they did with Princess Barbie. It's almost like the same thing. Yeah. Odin visits Morpheus, 
Morpheus is a great outfit. I was going to say, this is one of my favorite sort of outfits that he has. It's very colorful. It still mimics the flames that are on his yeah. jacket, but it's just, yeah, it's very like, it's the 90s, but I'm thinking about what glam rock looked like kind of version of him. It's also very anime. And Odin is, basically says that he knows that Loki is loose, and he knows it's Dream's fault, and this is bad. And Odin sort of brings up the idea that, like, what what are Dream's motivations here? Is he doing this on purpose? He says this part where he goes, You puzzle me, Dreamweaver. Are you a spider who spun a web of cunning and deceit, and now waits patiently for his prey to come to him? Or are you a deer frozen by the lights of a hunter's flame as disaster comes toward you? So, like, he's the first character, I think, in the story to acknowledge, like, is Dream caught up in this, like, and is just doomed? Or has he engineered this situation? Because depending on your perspective, it can really look, it can look like his mistakes have piled up and now he has to deal with them, or his cunning plan is coming to fruition exactly as he envisioned it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because, like, Morpheus has such ennui, he might orchestrate this very complicated in essence, like, existential suicide. I think what's one of the things that's really interesting about this depiction of Odin, because it's very much an American God's depiction of Odin. Yeah, he just looks like an old man. They show him when he's talking, and he has his two ravens, but his ravens are white. They're sort of blacked out. Yeah, they're like, they're like um, ethereal. Yeah, like, are they there? Are they the ones of the ravens that are in the dream world? Because there's 12 ravens that show up. Mm-hmm. waiting for this battle to start so they can feast on the remains. Yeah. Uh, and then he's also very clearly sick. Yeah. Implying that he's dying, maybe in the same way Bast is, and he tells Dream that he's very disappointed in him. Uh, and uh, then he leaves. Delirium visits Destiny in his garden, and Destiny simultaneously tells her not to... Well, he says, at the same time he says... Uh, to leave Dream alone, and also that she should go and talk to Dream and get him to help her. And she's very impressed by his ability to simultaneously say things, two different things at once, and then chooses to go with the one she likes, which is the one that tells her to go talk to Dream. Right. But I think also this is sort of, you you, you understand that this is also the part where Destiny is dealing with these multiple versions of himself and trying to assemble his entity back into one time stream. I imagine for someone like Destiny, having multiple time streams occurring at the same time probably really makes him upset. But it's also a reference, I too, to the fact that all of these things that are happening in this chaos that's being created is simultaneously happening as the reality storm that leads to what happens in World's End. Mm-hmm. So, like, as this, like... So you know from the previous volume that as the people are sitting in the world's end, trying to wait out this reality storm, these are the these are the events that are causing the reality storm that's keeping them there. Yeah. Uh, what else do we get in this one? Uh, Matthew and the Corinthian go to Lita's house. They don't really learn much, but they have a contentious relationship uh, where they argue, and um, the Corinthian suggest. Uh, is this when Matthew suggests they go in a disguise and? Uh, oh no! I was just—I was looking at the part with Thessaly where she does the the conjuring circle. And yeah. Then, 
she gets kicked in the face by a lamb that she's going to use as a sacrifice. She gets real mad. She's pretty clear she does not want to be doing whatever she's doing with Lita. Uh, Lita continues her psychic journey. She confronts various versions of herself uh, and then destroys them all, smashing the mirror that she's looking at them through and enters the Kindly One's domain. And she beseeches them to kill Dream, and they tell her that they can only avenge blood debts. It's only if they've killed their, his own family. And then she gets angry and goes to run away, and the Kindly Ones stop her, and they say he killed. He did kill his own son. Which I think we're supposed to take that Lita thinks that means that Daniel is his son. We know they're talking about Orpheus, and we know that they hate Orpheus because he made them cry in the underworld when he played his song for Hades and Persephone. At the same time that this is happening, uh, we find out that ravens are amassing in the Dreaming. All the ravens leave the Tower of London, and Gilbert shows back up and uh, basically tells Dream, I'm afraid about what's going to happen and why are you doing this? And Dream says uh, that he has his responsibilities. And this draws a very clear parallel between what's about to happen with Dream and what Gilbert did in the doll's house. They both reached this point where they had to make a sacrifice and reach an end that neither of them wanted, but because of who they are and the responsibilities they've taken on and this version of themselves that they've crafted, they really, while there was the illusion of choice, they really both had no choice. Dream has to do what's happening. He had to do all the things that led up to this, and so did Gilbert. And this is sort of like a counterpoint, I think, to Odin's accusation that maybe Dream arranged all this. Dream seems to be implying that, like, these events happened and he made the decisions he made and he because those were the decisions he had to make. Yeah, and I think this is, I kind of like, this is, this part confused me a little bit because it's sort of, like each day of Dream's week was sort of outlined by the activities that he was doing, and I kind of felt like I don't understand why it was structured in that way. Oh, that's the next issue. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, we just go through his his week. He does all these different things. He meets with various people and dreams. He goes to feed the birds, or uh, the uh, the pigeons, and then eventually uh, Delirium shows up to find her dog. And he gives her this little little squat dream with a mustache named Borgol Rantapole to watch over her and to help her find the dog. Um, I think this is just like, it just gives us, this is more of this, this story showing us that Dream is a good king. Yeah. And that's like what he's giving, gonna be, going to be giving up when he has to face his fate. Yeah, because I mean, despite the fact that Lita feels that he kidnapped and destroyed her child... Every interaction that Morpheus has had with children, and even in this part where he has a, he literally spends the whole Monday hanging out with these kids, mm-hmm. he is always really respectful of the children, and he treats them almost like they're adults. And I think even the times that he has visited Morpheus, has visited Daniel, and Lita has freaked out, Morpheus really wasn't doing anything. He he was observing him or slightly interacting him. And then when Daniel comes, accidentally walks into the dreaming and he spends the day with Cain and Abel and Goldie and they have this sort of 
tea party, mm-hmm. Daniel always seems to have a positive experience when he's in the dreaming. Yeah. But for some reason, Lita, I think that's her bias that she has created in her mind, that sort of narrative of the bad things that happened to me were Morpheus's fault. But we, I brought this up before, that he kind of, he does not explain what, what is going on to Lita. She has no understanding of what he is. Or why he's doing it, which uh, continues to raise this like specter of possibility that like maybe he did that on purpose. Maybe he was specifically guiding Lita to become the weapon that would kill him by by encouraging her hatred of him. Uh, I think that I, I that makes sense because if Dream, so Dream at one point says that he can't do what Destruction did. Yeah, because that's who he is. So he needs to find himself a replacement. And I think very early on in the story, he... I don't know if what happened to... No, because what happened to Lita and Hector, that was not Morpheus. The, those When he, Morpheus was in... When he was in the bottle, Brute and Glob right. tried to turn Hector into a surrogate... Uh, m- Sandman that they could control and he was going to in the process of cleaning up that mess he found that they had a child who was born in the dreaming and the little ghost of Hector that had tried to replace him and he destroys Hector and claims Daniel right and I think that once well Morpheus decides that he no longer wants to be the dream king he realizes that Daniel has a unique so Morpheus doesn't have a son but Daniel is almost created in the context of what how Morpheus would create a son yeah so he has a connection to the dream world he has this sort of superhero lineage that he you know from his parents and I think once he releases Lita from this dream prison that Glob and group put her in. Mm-hmm. He realizes that maybe this could be his replacement. And I think maybe. that's why he says, I'm going to keep an eye on this kid. And so he, maybe he is orchestrating all of this to happen because he can't just go to Lita and say, your son is the new dream king. Mm-hmm. She has to release him. So in this, all this machinations that happen where Loki and Robin Goodfellow are doing what they're doing is playing into what needs to happen for Dream to die and be reborn. Yes, and then for Daniel to become that new manifestation of the Dream King. Or he didn't plan any of this, and he is captured. He is a captive of his own responsibilities, and well, that would mean that even he. As you know, what do the what do the fairies call him, Lord Shaper? Yeah, he even as Lord Shaper has no control over his own fate. Maybe. Uh, what was I going to say? Th- there's this idea that comes up in the story that like Dream, yeah, Dream does not maybe doesn't want to be the Dream King anymore, and he can't choose to leave. Like essentially. Choosing to leave and dying are the same thing because both of them require him to become something else. He he cannot, as he is now, choose to leave. But it, Which makes you wonder if the whole point of this is that Daniel should, is supposed to become Dream and then leave. 
I think that Daniel has already shown that he has like a predestination to the dreaming. He can walk in and out of the dreaming. Yeah. He's unaware of it. He can affect things that are happening. He's and he was pretty much not born in the dreaming, but he lived a long period. Yeah. You know, in utero as the you know, in the dreaming world. And uh also it makes like Orpheus could never become dream. It wouldn't work or he's no. too much like dream already. Yeah. And they're both about like his nature is like in conflict with what he would need to be to be the dreaming. Like the the what drives him into the underworld is exactly what makes him unfit to be the Dream King. Because that's what Morpheus would have done. Because that's what Morpheus did do. We see him go to the underworld to get Nada back. Yeah. And in the process, Doom himself, maybe, in the same way that Orpheus did. Maybe. Unclear. Uh, like, intentionally unclear. But also what happens in this issue, we get the Kindly Ones show up in the Dreaming. Right. And they kill the, uh, the Griffin, who oh, guards the door. Before that... Rose takes up. She has a, oh, a yeah. sexual encounter with the solicitor. Jack. Jack. And then concurrently at the same time, who would have thought that the best detectives in the whole of the dreaming are Corinthian and Matthew? They're the perfect combo. <laughs> they, they go to the real world. And they... They solve the mystery of what happened to Carla and try to find out what's going on with... With Daniel. The Corinthian eats her eyes to yes. get a vision of Detective Pinkerton and Loki. And then they travel to Svartalheim to rescue Daniel. And they fight a wolf. Uh, but see, as soon as he as soon as soon he takes her eyes into his eye-mouth sockets, he gets that information. And then once he realizes that it's Loki, he knows exactly. So that shows that he does have pre-existing memory. Yeah. Because he knows Loki, he knows where Loki goes, he knows what happened. He also references, when they go to the morgue, he references the seeing the dissection. Mm-hmm. In, oh, the red ape, yes. Yeah. Uh, but the, I think this Corinthian part exists here to show us that, like, the Corinthian is still the Corinthian, essentially. But he has changed, and he is doing things the Corinthian could never do. And he could only change by that rebirth that he experienced. Right. Like, tying him further thematically to, to what's going on with Morpheus. Yeah, so the, the kindly ones show up in the dreaming, and you don't actually ever, like, actually see them. They're almost entirely portrayed through first-person perspective, mm-hmm. and the most we see of them are their hands or their shadows. The, essentially, the reader becomes the kindly ones, because we're driving the story. We're turning the page and pushing things further and further along to Morpheus's doom. And I think it's interesting too, once they they kill the griffin and they come in, for some reason Morpheus thinks that it's Lita. And he says I think she is embodying the kindly ones. There is a point later on in the story where the camera turns around and we see her standing there. Yeah. So then she, She's reflecting the kindly ones, but the physical being that is moving through the dreaming and killing people is Lita. Yeah, and it's kind of like a really intense one whole page panel. Of, like, Morpheus saying, come in, Lita. And then you see above him and around him this shadow of all three of the Kindly Ones. And then you, when the Kindly Ones speak, they speak in a white box that's surrounded by red. 
Yeah. And that continues throughout the rest of the story. Yes. Because now they're not the kindly ones. Now they are the Furies. Right. And, uh, yeah, they kill the, the, the Griffin, and the story, the issue ends with, uh, well, Rose finds out that Jack has a girlfriend, or, uh, right. and she's disappointed. And then the story ends with, and on Sun's Day, they held the first funeral, implying there will be more deaths, which there are, and they, they held the funeral for the Griffin, which is a, a bummer. Yeah. Issue 9, Rose goes to Paul McGuire's house. Uh, he's got all these books. She goes down to the basement to see the bottle where Morpheus is held. Desire's there. He, they, he, I guess he, he's in a male aspect at this point. Reveals that he is her grandfather. Right. And he gives her, her heart back in the form of a fancy lighter. Yeah, and it's kind of like a sweet wrap-up, but then you also, that's when you also clearly realize that Desire has some input in what is happening. I think this is Desire, this is Desire scared. Yes. This is Desire realizing what happened with Morpheus and Orpheus, and not wanting that to happen. So trying to develop some kind of connection with his progeny that Morpheus did not. Yeah, and I also think that, I mean, we know that Desire is scared because they, they cut turn, off their realm. Yeah, they cut off the, they, they put the, you know, the, extinguished their sigil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Corinthian fights Loki. That's intense. Loki keeps taking a bunch of different shapes, at one point turning into fire. Mm-hmm. And then also turning into da- to Daniel, so mm. it looks like the Corinthian is strangling. Yeah, because he's like some kind of like dragon, and then he turns into himself, and then he turns into the fire, and then finally at the end he reveals his true form. Yeah. Uh, the Kindly Ones rampage through the Dreaming and kill Gilbert and a bunch of animal, aminals. Uh It's very sad <laughs> when Gilbert dies. Yeah, that's surprisingly, especially like. Well, we know he's going to come back because he's in the. We see him in the funeral procession in World's End. Right, but it's kind of like they're like Lita as the kindly ones is killing like reason, and yeah. then it just becomes this sort of killing frenetic killing machine that's very chaotic and impulse driven and very. Um, yeah, things really go off the rails. Dream visits uh, Thessaly slash Larissa. We find out that dun, dun, dun. the ex-girlfriend that spurred on the plot of Brief Lives is her. Surprising. They, they were together. It did not work out. She's still kind of mad at him, but the reason she's helping Lita is because she owes a debt to the kindly one. Which makes sense. She's a Greek witch. Uh, she, she's a Greek witch, so obviously she would owe a debt to these Greek goddess figures. But I like how she, like, calls him out about that circle. Like, yeah. She just really rams it home. Like, who's going to tell you more brutally, honestly, like, what's going on than this witch? And uh, he very dramatically leaves and explodes all her windows. <laughs> uh, so apparently it was a very bad breakup. You know how it is. Matthew is called, uh, against his will, is called back to the Dreaming to be with the flock of ravens. Uh, they feast on Gilbert's corpse, which Dan Matthew is upset about because they're friends, but then he kind of joins in anyway because that's his nature. That's important. Your nature can't well, escape it. I think it's Leopard like, can change his shirt, but he can't change his spots. 
I think it's kind of it's super dramatic when Matthew like literally pulls out Gilbert's Don't... eye, almost like in a nod to like. Well, because that immediately cuts to the Corinthian having removed both of Loki's eyes and rescued Daniel from the fire. And that's the same thing. When, Is when the, the Corinthian oh, rescues Daniel, he pulls him out by that long string that's wrapped around his arm. And at some point, Daniel is just floating, like, yeah. into space. Is the... <laughs> and the, the Corinthian, like, says, like, very, like, dramatically, like, so there you are, Daniel. I've been looking all over for you. Like, yes, we've rescued you. We've sent a serial killer dream monster that has teeth for eyes to rescue this cute little innocent baby. Well, I also want to read the, st- the thing that the Corinthian's eye mouth says as he has choked out <laughs> uh, Loki. He says, oh, he'll help us whether he wants to or not. I told him, I told the truth. I would not kill him. The death curse, death curse of a god is an evil thing. But I can hurt him and I will. And besides, have you never wondered, little bird, what it must be like to see the world through the eyes of a god? So he takes Loki's eyes. Yeah, there's a great part later on that we'll get to when Odin makes fun of him for that. <laughs> he was like, haha, I lost one eye, but now you lost two. So. Yeah, and then the issue ends with that line you read from the Corinthian, having rescued Daniel, standing over Loki's bloody, you know, body with his eyeballs plucked out. Uh, and then the next issue starts with him severing that cord to f- finish his rescue. And having a confrontation with Robin Goodfellow, who's basically like, uh, you know. He's back to his true form. He's back to his true form. They, these two monsters kind of have this like standoff in the firelight where they basically decide they're not going to fight each other. And Robin Goodfellow is like, why did I do this? I don't know. Probably because it was fun or whatever, or that's my nature. And like. He's very, like, ambiguous about what his motivations are. And he quotes a very fam- famous poem. Oh, yeah. You want to say what it was? No, go ahead. You're the poet. Uh, shit, I can't find it. What is, wait, what does he actually quote? He says, things fall apart. The center Oh, he hold. does. He quotes the... Near-Arctic yeah. anarchy is loose upon the world. Yeah, he quotes the second comic. I was looking at the part where he's talking about the mouse, and I was like... Wait, what is that for? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he does do that. He, I mean, that makes sense. He's supposed to be like a poet, sort of. And that's what he says. He says, that's me, ex-jester to the king of the fairy. He also reveals that the fire burned away most of Daniel's mortality. I like how this sort of comedy element of like, now the Corinthian is a babysitter and like, you see him holding Daniel and he's holding him by like his waist and he's really far away from him. And he's kind of like, he's not like quite sure how to like nurture a baby, Mm -hmm. but he's, it's kind of like, I'm thinking, is he in his mind thinking like, do I eat this? Like, what do I do with this like entity? And then remembering that Morpheus was like, don't do anything to him. Yeah. Uh... But I like this sort of, primal version of like Robin Goodfellow when he like is no longer hidden and he's revealed himself. And I think there's clearly like a connection being drawn between him and the Corinthian. They're both, but like Robin Goodfellow has never changed and he's been like, you know, he's been what he is forever. And, but they're both like servants of a King that have gone rogue and are traveling through the waking world. But 
Yeah, because then Odin shows up with Thor, and they're like, we're taking him back. Well, yeah, that happens later. Uh, oh, yeah, Odin does show up with Thor. Yeah, this is the great part where... What does he say? Uh, I left one eye with Mimir, the bodyless, traded it for wisdom. Now you've lost both eyes, but I fear you have the, had the worst of the bargain. Yes. And Loki tries to... Uh, fuck with Thor by telling the what appears to be the truth, which is that he had an affair with Thor's wife. Because earlier in the story, he tells this long, gross joke about how he tricked Thor into thinking he was pregnant, and it ends with Thor thinking that a shit-covered squirrel is his baby. <laughs> and that while that was happening, he went and seduced Thor's wife. And he brings this up again, and Odin's like, he is lying. Don't listen to him. And they take him back to his punishment. And they give his wife the chance to leave him. But and she leave. doesn't. She doesn't. But it's very unclear if she stays because she wants to help him. Or if she stays because she knows those moments of respite in between the poison dripping into his eye holes actually makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really clear. But in the end, Loki, for all trying to, he tried to escape his punishment. And in the end, goes back to it and it's worse than it ever was. That's true. And uh, and then the kindly ones kill Cain, uh, kill Abel. And it's very sad. And Goldie cries over his I bloody know, body. It's a huge th- bummer. And then that's interesting because later on we were talking about this. Cain uh, is really upset about it. Yeah, it's his job. And then, But he couches it in a way that he's upset that his contract that he had with Morpheus is broken. The contract said that he is the only one who was allowed to kill his brother. Yeah, and then Abel's last words before he dies are, uh, you mustn't kill me, you don't love me, you don't even know me. Yeah, yeah. And then then we get the sequence where Nuella is at the party in Fairy. Robin Goodfellow comes back and they dance. He tells her that uh, Dream is uh, gonna die. She shows up at the party without her glamour on and yeah, it's a huge deal. And everyone is upset and confused. And Chloricon quickly puts her glamour back on her and mollifies the queen because he can apparently mollify anybody. And basically says that uh, they had a bet that she couldn't wear anything so outrageous that it would cause a scene. And she proved him wrong by showing up without her glamour. And please don't kill my sister, queen. It's kind of his fault because he should have just left her where she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was like, oh, I gave you away, mm-hmm. and now I want you to come back, and you don't really want to come back, so I'm going to force you to come back. Well, I mean, he is... And then once you come back, I'm going to torment you by dressing up as a Bogart and reading you terrible poetry to make you feel even worse about yourself. But that's, like, the thing. It ties back to the themes. Like, the Chloricon, for all of his playing at Rebellion, is... Just as much a slave to his responsibilities as anyone else. He's a servant of the queen and he must do what she asks. And he must, he's also a servant to his own nature. I mean, that's the thing that Robin Goodfellow gets at is like, yeah, I'm a representative of like chaos and discord, but also like, I have to do what a puck must do. And, uh, yeah, then Merv dies. I think it's interesting that he, he's referred to as the puck. Yeah. But, like, in Shakespeare, it's the, his name. Yeah. Implying that there might be more pucks. Well, when he's talking to the Corinthian, he mentions, he says, a puck. Implying there are other pucks. But he's the he's the big one. Yeah. He's Robin Goodfellow. Yes. I also, like, th- this part really got to me, too. The part, like, because this, 
now all the ravens are feasting on all this sort of rampage of these murders that Connie One slash Lita are doing. And Merc gets all upset. Yeah. And he, because he's almost like a scarecrow, he tries to step in. I love the part where he's just, there's a paddle and he's got like some type of like high powered rifle or machine gun. Mm -hmm. And he's like looking in there, squinting in there, and he's got a cigar. So he's kind of like. He's wearing like an army jacket. Yeah, it's kind of like he's definitely like some kind of 90s like action star. Yeah. Uh, and he, he has his, his moment where he unloads a clip into the kindly ones and it, uh, it doesn't amount to anything. They throw the bullets back at him and he is utterly obliterated. And then we just get one panel of like Lucian's dejected face and he says, Mervyn's dead. And Dream goes, yes. And, uh, he calls Dream out for letting everyone in the Dreaming suffer. Under the even, onslaught of the kindly ones, and even Nuella, in in not under the kindly ones, but she is still suffering also, because I think that he's sort of implying that he sh- that Dream should have said, "You can stay here," yeah, which he never says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we cut back to Nuella, and she has run away into the woods, and she meets Delirium, and tries to tell her that um, something is happening with Dream. And she's very concerned, but she doesn't really know what to do. And she's still trying to find her dog. And she reminds Nuala about the necklace a dream gave her that she can use to call him and ask for a boon. Yeah. And then Rose is on a plane and she has a conversation with an old lady uh, where she talks about reading Here Comes a Candle, which is the book from Calliope. Right. Yeah, that's a weird, like, callback, I think. And it but it makes sense. Seems like the plot of that book is just the plot of Calliope. And I think, but I think also for Burgess to have that book, yeah, that's I mean that's yeah. And then his dad kept the dream and the thing, so it's all all connected. Everyone is deep. sins of the father. This a, is a huge. That's a huge. And oh, McGuire literally says that when when Rose leaves, he mentions sins of the father, and it's like yeah, okay. That's what's going on. And, like, Rose is dealing with what her grandfather de- Desire did. And, like, Morpheus is a dad who fucked up. But he's dealing with what how he bad he fucked up. And now all of his charges are, are suffering under what his actions. And Nuella calls him to her. And I don't really quite understand this. But him having left the Dreaming is bad. Yeah. he he's He's not vulnerable. In the Dreaming. In the Dreaming. But he, if he leaves the dreaming and comes back, he's still vulnerable. Yeah. Well, also, I think that they can destroy the dreams while he's in the dreaming, but they can't destroy the dreaming. And now that he's gone, they start to take apart his realm. Yes. Uh, the cr- Corinthian shows back up with the baby. Takes him. Corinthian takes him. Takes Daniel to the dreaming. Yeah. And he runs into Cain. And runs into Cain. And now we got another buddy story where Cain and the Corinthian. Are teamed up. It's the first murderer and the serial killer nightmare okay. are hanging out with a baby. <laughs> and it turns out that it's really sad. He, he brings up the contract. It turns out that he has Goldie in his pocket. Yeah. Um, and Daniel recognizes Goldie. He calls him Doggy. Yeah, that's that's kind of sweet. They go to the to the gatekeepers, and there's only two of them left. And they let them in. And. 
yeah, they're they're all real upset. It's clear that like the dreaming is falling apart now. I what is the Oh no, no. I was going to say what is the griffin symbolized, but I think I was thinking about where the part where he said the gate is made of the three, the bones of these three things. Yeah, but I th- that's just the gate there. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. They imply that they've just like always been there. Yeah. Because Matthew asks them about like, when did you show up? How long have you been guarding the gate? Like earlier in the story. Yeah, so she he goes to Fairy and he talks to Nuala. Yeah. And she sort of, he sort of tells her that bad things are happening. It's not a good time to come, but you, I owe you a boon, so I'll give it to you. Again, responsibilities. He has to do what he has to do. And if he didn't do those things, he wouldn't be him. Uh, she confesses her love for him. He does not reciprocate. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily like she's in love with him, like she wants to have a relationship. I think she just loves him like i mean she wants him to love her and he cannot do it he says i can give you a dream of my love and she says i already have that and kisses him on the cheek and sends him to die yeah uh rose shows back up with the hospice and zelda is dead uh she has like a really unpleasant interaction where she has to pay for that this is like i don't like the zelda dying thing this was good like this like Okay, while we're telling this, like, big mythical story about the death of a god, this is the brutal reality of what death is like in the real world. And it sucks. And you have to pay for things. And sometimes you have only two people show up at your funeral. Dream gets everyone in the fucking universe to show up at his funeral. Yeah, and he literally causes a reality storm which stops this this stream of time. And no one cares that Zelda died. And it's a huge bummer. So Rose gives the things that she bought for Zelda to this recurring... The old man. The old man, who's very similar to the character of the homeless woman in the story. In a game of you. In game of you. It's also like a weird recursive thing because he shows up and he has chocolates and candy in the beginning. Yeah. And then she asks him if he likes chocolates and uh, or chocolates and flowers. And then she gives him chocolates and flowers. And it's like, is he in a time loop? What's going on? Is it just there to reflect the like cyclical nature of life and death? Also, at this point, it becomes clear that he has, that Barnaby is hanging out with him. Because yes. he's got a talking dog that's... Yeah, because uh, the sign changes from will work for food. Will, or I'm just going to spend it on beer. It's crossed out and it says I'm just going to spend it on dog food. And uh, he gets the chocolates and the dog speaks for the first time and says that, um, you know, you're probably not going to be able to eat all these chocolates by yourself, huh? And it's like, oh yeah, Barnaby is a talking dog that loves chocolate. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then you go... you. Uh, Switch to the most inappropriate daycare that could ever exist. It's because now you have Lucian, Lucian, Kane, <laughs> and the Corinthian hanging out in Dream's throne room with Goldie and Daniel. And what is the the ball? Daniel finds a. They're like, oh, uh, let's give him something to play with. And Kane picks up a crystal ball and gives it to him. But like, what is that? Is that? That's clearly a callback to something, but I don't recognize it either and i thought at first maybe it was the city in the jar like a reference to that like maybe he had maybe. more oh is it azazel or azrael or whatever the the demon that he captures yeah, yeah yeah yeah, he has him in the ball that's right 
And then he says maybe we should give him something else to play with. That makes sense because if it is that, then he shouldn't be playing with that. Yeah. Um, that's great. I like all them together. It's clear they're like hunkering down. Dream is collapsed. The dreaming is collapsing all around them. They're like the only three uh, left. And they're almost like kind of like a counterpoint to the kindly ones. They're like three men who have now yeah. gathered together. The brother, the killer, and the scholar. Yeah. I don't know what that means, if that's a thing. But yeah, there are, there are three men who are clearly like taking different roles and they, they're caring for this child. But we also learn, I don't know if we learn it here, but at some point we do learn, like, spoiler alert, Lucian was one of the ravens, was one of Morpheus's ravens who decided to become a human. Well, to become a dream. Become one a became dream. a human again. Two stayed in the dreaming. We only find out who one of them is. And it's Lucian. I don't know if we find if in the next line we find out who the other one is, but if we do, I don't remember. I also think it's. I mean, at one point where when they have there's one panel of Daniel standing there and he's sort of pastel colored and he's holding the ball, and then when the Corinthian takes the ball off of him, he's just a white. It's a whole white image, and he's just an outline on it. And I think that's sort of you know telling of what happens to Daniel in the future, the very near. Future. Yeah, Dream returns. Oh no, wait. We get De- Destiny confronts like the fracturing of him and uh, and acknowledges that like we're at a point where f- certain things can happen, and he doesn't know which way it's going to go, and he doesn't know which of these phantom destinies is the true destiny. Right, and also this is when you realize that the things that are happening in the dream world are causing the reality storm that's world's end. I think this is the craziest part of like when he shows up and he first he shows up in a carriage and then it morphs into a train and then he gets off and he's like wearing a great outfit. Yes. Which he's, is like a business suit and a scarf and some It's a double breasted suit <laughs> and he's got like a long scarf draped around his neck. Is he wearing gloves? No, but he has thigh high leather boots and like skinny jeans on and he's also wearing a flaming cape. Yes, it's it rules. It's so good. Uh, and then that's when uh, Kane uh, calls him out about the contract. Yeah. And it brings up the responsibilities again. Like, you have a responsibility to us, to the Dreaming. What are you doing? What are you going to do about this? And that's when he first, he runs into the kindly ones and they attack him and he actually gets wounded. And then you realize that he is vulnerable to that. Yeah, they whip him in the face with their scorpion whips. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually bleeds. And this is where Lita sees Daniel is alive. Yeah. And she realizes that she has set into motion something that she cannot stop. And she has started under false pretenses. And this is when the kindly ones are like, oh, actually, our we're invested in this because we hate Dream and we hate his son. And we're angry that he made us cry. And this doesn't have anything to do with you. You are a pawn. And I think Which is something that Larissa says earlier. She yeah. calls her a pawn. But I think this is also where you see Lita and she's in her superhero app. Super yeah, she's just hero like, a, app, yes. like a knight or something. She and has then like armor. it cuts and you do see all the individual kindly ones. Now they're separated from her. But they're all sort of in their battle gear. And then when Lita looks at them, she sees them for what they really are. Their yeah. true forms. So, he, like, at some point, too, he puts on another outfit. This is when he starts to put on these really giant gloves. 
And he's yeah. wearing like jeans and a t-shirt, but he puts on these giant gloves. Yeah, I was trying to see if I could find a reference to what the ball was, but I, I couldn't. I was looking at some annotations online, but yeah, uh, he puts on the gloves. He he's got his helmet. He's wearing his like regalia. Uh, but yeah, he puts on his the whole the whole outfit. Uh, we get like some brief cuts of some other characters. Uh, Remiel and Duma are talking, and Remiel is like talking about needing to keep the faith. A guy looks under Mazikeen's mask and goes insane. Uh, Thessaly is uh, concerned about how much she actually misses Dream and is sad about his impending death. So, and then now we realize that he, even while he's putting on his regalia, he has also retrieved the emerald that he needs. Yeah, it's a dream, one of the dreamstones that he made. They've been referenced before. He says that he's going to have to talk to Daniel. And then uh, Dream lays out the whole thesis of the story. He says, rules and responsibilities, these are the ties that bind us. We do what we do because of who we are. If we didn't otherwise, we would not be ourselves. I will do what I have to do, and I will do what I must. And that is the end of the issue. He's looking at his helmet when that happens and standing in a doorway with the shadow. I think that's supposed to be the shadow of the kindly ones on him. Uh, and he's got his big flaming cape on. Uh, yeah, so the issue starts with Dream and Matthew talking, and he gives, this is where the, I mean, relatively famous, uh, the facet is not the gem speech comes from, which was basically him explaining what it's like when one incarnation of an endless dies and another one takes over. He says, uh, facets, Matthew. Each facet catches the light in its own way. It glints and sparkles and flashes uniquely. It would almost be possible to believe that the facet was the jewel. Not just a tiny part of it, but then as we move the jewel, another facet catches the light. And then he said, Matthew asks him what his point is, and he says, My point, Matthew, I have no point, Matthew, save for the jewel and the facets and the light. We see an aspect of the whole, but the jewel facet is not the jewel. I think this is also interesting because this set of panels shows Morpheus' reflection in the green emerald, mm-hmm. which goes on to become the medallion, the pendant that Daniel, who becomes the new manifestation of Dream, has on. So Morpheus has a red pendant, mm-hmm. and then when Daniel takes on the role of Dream, becomes, I guess, the Lord Dream or whatever. He becomes Dream. He becomes Dream, but he does, he's not Morpheus. He's still Daniel, but he's just Dream. Yeah. And his pendant is green, and it's the same stone that is reflected in the story, in the previous story, where they talk about the nomadic tribe that finds the stone, and it's the green-shaped, heart-shaped emerald. This is also the part where we see that Dream has the conversation with Daniel. Yeah, he says we've spoken. Uh, And then he goes to leave, and he tries to dismiss dismiss Matthew, but Matthew won't actually leave. He still wants to be with him at the end and follow him to his fate. Well, I think at this point, all through the story, Matthew is questioning the role of the Ravens, and he's trying in his mind to figure out the history of the Ravens, but I think what he comes to an understanding is that the Ravens are companions to Dream, and they serve Dream. Mm -hmm. And then he finally realizes that part of his role as the latest raven is to be there and to sport Morpheus. Yeah. 
Uh, and we get a short scene with Delirium, where she ends up at Lux, and she talks to Mazikeen. And this is where we see that Mazikeen, because she only has half a mouth, can't really talk very well. Yeah. And she lets Delirium in, seemingly as a way to kind of fuck with Lucifer. I think it's interesting, too, that Mazikeen and Delirium... The way that they're drawn sort of mimic each other because they're both sort of dual nature. Like, Mazikeen has half a mask, but then Delirium has one side of her face, which is long, flowing hair, and the other side is short, and two different color eyes, and she sort of mimics, I guess, in a way, or counterbalances Mazikeen as, like, their dual nature. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Also, she's turned the Bordigal Rantipal into an angelfish and is walking him on a leash. <laughs> of course, because she likes fish. And then it comes back to Dream of Matthew, and it's just kind of this... Reinforces this idea of, like, rules and responsibilities. Matthew's like, hey, you're basically God here. Why are we, like, traveling to meet up with the Kindly Ones? Why don't you just, like, end up there? I also like that this depiction of, like dream in his full regalia it's also sort of very like king-like and luxe like rich because he has all this beating around and even his mask is like beaded and it's very you know embellished kind of like very regal yeah uh and then we had not mentioned this before but there had been at least one reference earlier in the story to a like a kind of a shock jock comedian that has become popular named Vixen LeBitch that Rose does not like. And this next scene reveals that this she is a character that Hal is playing. And they've had sort of a falling out because Rose doesn't like the sort of edginess of Hal's new character's humor. And then she tells him about... Uh, Zelda's death. Zelda's death and tries to get him to go to the funeral and he's being a real dick about it, but she kind of breaks through to him. And, uh... Yeah, these are, like, it's interesting because they're, like, sort of short, like, intercuts that Mm -hmm. are happening in between the very dramatic action of Morpheus planning for battle. So now they cut back to Morpheus and it's raining and the wind's blowing and then, like, there's this one panel where his coat is up and he almost looks like a raven. And he's still talking to Matthew in a very dramatic way. And then finally he goes to confront the kindly ones. Well, I was going to say, the, this these intercuts to the Hal and Rose stuff is the thing that I actually like about the Zelda death subplot. Because what it's doing is contrasting... The dream story, which is a story about death and inevitability and eventual mourning, but it's heightened and mythic and it's like a Greek tragedy, whereas the story about Zelda's death is very, like, mundane and you have to go through bureaucracy and, like, find your shitty friend and sort of slightly emotionally bully them into coming to the funeral. And then it cuts back to dream and he's like, in the rain on top of a stone spire talking to his servant bird who calls him his friend. This is another important moment. Like, it's not just him preparing for the end. Matthew says it was good being your friend, and Dream is like, oh, we were friends? Like, oh, I have another friend? Yeah, well, he's always sort of surprised that the people that are loyal to him consider him a friend. That was the same thing with Hob. He really 
like all those years of meeting with Hob until it was pointed out to him that these are his, that Hob was his friend. He kind of didn't want to admit that he had a friend. And he said that the dinner is at Asian Bamboo House on State Road at 530. Today? Yeah. Okay. So then it cuts back, and we're back to delirium. But this time she's talking to Lucifer. Yeah, and I think I accidentally said that this scene happens earlier in the book. I thought that this was something that he says when he's talking to Ramiel. But it's in this scene with delirium where he sort of tries to take some responsibility for what's happening to Dream. You know, with having cursed him with the key to hell. And, you know, he sort of talks about inevitability. Uh, I think this is there to sort of contrast him with Dream. They're both people that made, they're both kings that made choices to leave their kingdom. And Lucifer's consequences are entirely emotional, whereas Dream is literally going to die. And it just sort of drives home this, like, you know, the further theme of, like, change and the way in which change can feel like a death that's like the major theme of this story i think it's also i mean this is the part where you realize that despite getting exactly what he wanted he's miserable he's still miserable and then we go back to dream and matthew again and this is when he sends matthew away and this is also when he tells him about the ravens he tells him that uh he doesn't really know what happens to ravens most of them just die they go to be live in death's realm and he doesn't know what happens to them after that. And Matthew shouldn't be allowed to know what happens after that. He reveals that one of them went back to being a human. And that two of them stayed in the dreaming and one of them is Lucian. But he does not reveal who the other one is. And then did, were you ever able to find out who he was talking about? No, I don't think it... I don't think... It, unless it's brought up in the next volume, I don't think it's ever confirmed. But also, before they cut to the scene with Lucifer... Morpheus calls to the kindly ones and he says, ladies, I'm here. It's time to settle this matter for good. And then after all this sort of time pause, the kindly ones say, we are here, dream lord. Yeah. And that's when it goes back. To fairy, to Nuella. She's being pestered by the bogger who's reading his bad poetry, who reveals himself to be Clericon. And she reveals that she's going to leave. The dream of uh, leave fairy. I mean, it's another like her story is meant to mirror a dream story. They're making a choice. They're leaving. They're changing. She's realizing that her time in the dreaming has changed her too much and she can't stay in fairy, which is interesting because it's sort of an inversion of the kind of classic mythic archetype of the journey to fairyland story where you go to fairyland and it changes you so much that you can't go back to your home. Her home is fairy and she can't stay there. And now she's going to leave. Yeah, but I think she realizes that the Bogart that was tormenting her the whole time was actually her brother. It seems like she knew it all along, and she was just putting up with it because it's a thing that he does. And then that's part of why she has to leave, because she realizes, like, she probably this probably used to happen all the time. And she probably used to constantly play along with him wearing different shapes and faces and tormenting her, and now she just can't do that anymore. She can't, she can't play that game. She needs to leave. Well, I think she was already, even at the point where she was told that she was free to go she was kind of hoping that morpheus was going to say i want you to stay yeah and that's... then after she has that interlude with him where he says he just lets her go despite her proclamation of love 
she's still willing to go back to the dreaming because I guess that's where she feels her most like self. Like she doesn't, she's no longer happy with this like glamour and the facade and this like falseness of the fairies. Yeah. I mean, that's a really sad thing about her story is like she's desperate for Morpheus to express any sort of positive feeling to ask her to be there or anything. He won't, won't do it when she goes to leave the first time. He won't do it when she calls him, to him with the necklace. He's, he, I mean, he doesn't, I don't know, he feels totally neutral towards her. And she is, like, unwaveringly devoted to him. And then, I mean, just like in the beginning of the series, and just when Morpheus is released from his prison, and he's sort of at his lowest period, his sister shows up. Mm-hmm. And then, so then she shows up, and at first she shows up and she meets with Daniel, and she has this conversation with the Corinthian. Well, Dream talks to the kindly ones, and they basically tell him, uh, we're just going to tear the Dreaming apart. All we want to do is to destroy you and the Dreaming, and there's nothing you can do to make us stop. And then it cuts to death, and she shows up at the babysitter's club with the Corinthian and Lucian and Daniel, who's got the emerald. And then this is, I think, the scene that really drives home how different this version of the Corinthian is. Because well, he stands up to death. He's concerned that she might try and take the baby, and he's he puts himself between them and is willing to risk being destroyed to get the baby. And it's a huge contrast to how pathetic... And Craven, the original Corinthian, was in the scene in which he is confronted by Dream at the serial killers conference. But I also like this sort of image of like Daniel as a little tiny baby wearing like his overalls. And he's so innocent, but yet he's like playing with the emerald. Yeah. You know, so he's... Yeah, because she says... He says you can't take him. You can't take us. And then she says, well, I'm not here for either one of you. Where's my brother? Yeah. So first she introduces herself as his master sister, and then she just flat out says, where's my brother? And then it cuts back to him, and he's talking to, I guess he's talking to the kindly ones. And But then he's, at some point he takes off his helm, and he shows his face, and he's just, you know, Morpheus, sad. You know, Morpheus pouring rain down on him, and he's trying to sort of. He gives his like, rem. You know, his whatever his regalia. Regalia. He gives it to Matthew to take to the dreaming, and then you realize that like this is the end. He's no longer. He's literally giving up his like throne at this point. Yeah, he sends Matthew to take back to the throne room with his stuff. Uh, and to get his sister and bring her here. But it's, before this, we, he gets this uh, thing with him where he, he just flat out asks again, do I have any alternative? And they say no. And I think f- for some people, this sequence plays as kind of anticlimactic because he, in essence, decides to kill himself. Yeah, but, but I think it's really... Se- I don't think he... I don't see it as him killing himself. I see him... As sacrificing himself to save the dreaming and all of the creatures that live in the dreaming. Well, he could have gone to fight the kindly ones and what he instead decides is bring death to me. But I mean, I think this is the only thing that could have happened because so much of this story and so much of Sandman in general is about 
giving up your power and giving up your privilege and giving yourself over to the consequences of your actions and to the winds of fate and change. And he literally strips down to just his genes and like drops his, he, you know, he gives Daniel, he gives Matthew his regalia, but he also like drops his cape and his gloves off of the cliff and sort of just stands there bare chested in the rain. And like, the thing is, that's the choice. That's the change. If he had gone to fight the kindly ones, he would be no different than he was at the beginning of the story. That would have been the same dream that went to hell to fight Lucifer. The dream that willingly gives it up is the dream that has, like, learned the lessons he's supposed to learn throughout this story. I think you're right, because I see I see him, the act of divesting himself of the sort of trappings of the mm-hmm. dream king and stripping down to his, like, bare self. But then also making the conscious decision not to actually fight the kindly ones, knowing that it's going to destroy the dream world, Mm -hmm. is sort of showing the like final progression of the evolution of Morpheus that starts with this very selfish and vindictive Mm -hmm. and rage-filled god who is released to the sort of more tempered, more evolved, more sort of compassionate leader. Yeah, it's also a refutation of Destruction's viewpoint. Right. Because in this, Dream is acknowledging that he did change. Because that's the other thing that's super important about this, is what is the first volume of Sandman about? It is about him reclaiming his regalia. And what is the final act he does in the last vo- in the second to last volume? He gives up his regalia. He gives it away. And, like, he doesn't abandon his post, but he does change... And he does accept responsibility, and it's like, he has become not just a better version of himself from the beginning, but this is a better version of what Destruction does. Destruction leaves out of fear and abandons his responsibilities to seek change and personal growth. Morpheus finds a way to maintain his responsibilities and to grow and change. I also think that for Destruction, his, he, he has set himself on this journey of personal discovery but i think he's also simultaneously unfulfilled yeah because his decision sort of left him with no closure and i think for morpheus he it there's a closure in his decision but then also spending time with his sister at the end is sort of bringing that circle completely around to where it started you know sort of to me, the actual start of Morpheus's journey is that conversation he has with his sister when they're feeding the pigeons. Well, yeah, because that's very much bookended. Because the, this is the end of the this this issue ends with him standing in the rain, smiling, and Matthew arriving in the throne room and telling Death to go to him. Issue thirteen opens with again him sitting with Death. They summon pigeons and feed them. I think Neil Gaiman very much agrees with you that that is the start of, essentially the start of Morpheus's story. That's when he begins to change. And then this book ends it with him at the end of his journey, having that same scene with his sister. And it's an interesting thing too, because the the first, the sound of her wings is the name of that issue. And she's basically like, you know, you're a sad sack. You need to, to cheer up and do stuff and give people hope. And, you know, he's done that. We've seen the way he's inspired. I mean, I think, like, in a way, the New Corinthian proves 
death right. Like he did do that. He he used his power as the the king of stories to make himself and someone else better, and it's him in the Corinthian. But it's also like he's still sad. He says he's tired. Well, yeah, because I mean, over the span of the entire series, he's had a very long journey. It's been very long and emotional for him to achieve the amount of personal growth that he has. But I think it's also sort of like it's sad and bittersweet and it's touching that like he in his last transition his sister is there with him. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, she like she sort of it's sort of it's like a non-event, like there's no dramatic ba- battle, he doesn't die in a mm-hmm. dramatic way, but it's sort of more relatable. Oh yeah, I think this and is I way think... better than if he had, if the Furies had stabbed him through the chest with a scorpion tail spear, it, I think that would have been much less affecting than him on the rain feeding pigeons with his sister. Yeah, and I think that, but I mean ultimately, he knows that he has to die. And he knows that Daniel is to become the new Dream King. And the only way that Lita Hall can get the resolution that she needs mm-hmm. so that she can become finally aware of what Loki and Robin Goodfellow did to her is for her to see Dream die. die. Yeah. And then they also have a conversation, him and Death have a conversation where she says, and where he says, like, this, you know, this is inevitable. This has been happening ever since I killed my son and they they both acknowledge the the idea of like blaming Nuella for calling him out of the dreaming is like bullshit and he's, he says that but he doesn't blame her and that's not what's happening here but then she says you know destruction was afraid of exactly this thing that's about to happen which begs the question of what did destruction do where he was so convinced that somebody he was going to die and someone else was going to take the mantle of destruction but he says, like, I couldn't do that. And she says, no, of course you couldn't. But you know what I think for him? I think that, in a way, Morpheus picked Daniel. Yeah. Daniel was created to serve as the next Dream Lord. Yeah, well, I mean, it raises this question that I brought up before about the way he treats Little Hall, which is, it's still ambiguous at the end of this story if he arranged all of these events. I also think it's, I mean, in my mind, I think that maybe the Corinthian... That Morpheus recreated the Corinthian, a kinder, gentler yeah. Corinthian, to be a protector of him, of Daniel while he grew into the role of being the next dream. Yeah, I think absolutely. Because, I mean, in the next scene, it goes right to the next scene, and you see Corinthian, and he's fighting a giant spider that is one of the creatures that was released by the kindly ones. Mm-hmm. So he's still, even though he really... Claims to be this sort of amoral serial killer. He has a loyalty to both Dream and to Daniel. And even to some certain extent to Lucian. Well, I think the important, really important thing that happens on this scene when it comes back to the Corinthian and why this scene is specifically juxtaposed with the conversation that Dream is having with Death is that he doesn't kill Daniel. He, he said he was going to kill Daniel for abandoning him. And he, in fact, protects him from the spider. And it's like... The, that is, that's illustrating to us that this Corinthian has changed. He has become something different than he was the first time we saw him in the same way that Dream has. It's kind of like my three dads at this point. Yeah. Because now Matthew has returned. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you remember me, kid? So you have like Matthew, the Corinthian, and Lucian, 
They're and all... Kane's in there somewhere, but he hasn't talked recently. No, no. So you have all these people helping out to take care of this baby, just waiting for, you know, Morpheus to finally shuffle off, which he eventually does. Mm-hmm. And then Dream refutes the idea that he planned this. Uh, and he claims that he thought he was going to be able to keep things in check, which then changes the question because it, then it becomes, well, one, he could be lying. Maybe he did plan it. But it also becomes the, like, did he purposefully leave all these loose ends floating around as a way to sabotage himself? Or was he just too arrogant? Like, what, what exactly? We know this is a tragedy, but it's very ambiguous as to what exactly his fatal flaw is. I mean, I think it's responsibility, essentially. And it's an interesting sort of tragedy where that's the thing that kills him, but the story is not, does not condemn that idea and that concept. It's like, that's also the best thing about him. But she says like, oh, you got yourself, you are the only reason you got in this mess is because you wanted to be in it. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't deny that. He just says, I didn't plan this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, he might have been, he might have been expecting it, but I don't think he could have plans for all of the components to come together. I mean, this whole, I mean, that would mean that he was responsible for putting, well, he sort of is responsible for putting Loki and Robin Goodfellow together. But then that scheme, so I mean, it's such, it's, okay, it's like such a long con. But he sets up, I mean, it is like, there's, there are ways to read it though, because it's like, he knows that Lita, he has to know that Lita is like, connected to the Furies, right? And he treats her like shit i mean he's not like he doesn't treat her like shit but he does not at any point clarify what's going on he leaves all the ambiguity in the world for her to interpret him as a malicious figure and then he puts he lets these guys that could potentially hurt him back out into the world like he should know about loki right he should know that there's nothing loki's more afraid of than being in debt to someone and then he puts loki into his debt i think that in some way the Corinthian and Loki and Cain and Abel and Robin Goodfellow, they're all sort of mirrors or versions of like components of Morpheus. Sure. So he has in a way has acted like a lot of these characters currently act. And I think that's why he can relate so easily to everything that they're doing. I mean, he seems to have compassion towards these characters. Like when he interacts with Lucifer, he seems to understand what Lucifer's going through. Yeah. And he sort of can relate to to Lucifer's, like, chronic, you know, dissatisfaction at being the head of hell. So. I mean, it's like the moment that kills him, if it's anything, it's the moment that he lets Loki go. And there's a way to read that where it's like he let Loki go because he knew that having Loki in his debt would mean that Loki would try to kill him. But it's also like... Yeah, he went through the same thing. Like, he was in prison, too. And so much of Xamarin is about him freeing people from prisons. Like, Calliope and Nada and himself. And it's like, what is he going to do besides try and let him go? He would be a real shit if he let him go back. Because that's the thing with Nada in Hell. In the first volume, he goes to Hell and he leaves Nada there. And then he goes back to get her because he's changed. The Morpheus that exists by the time of Season of the Mist could not have let Loki go back under the mountain. But you know what? I think that's true because in the final scene after death takes him and it cuts back to the throne room, there's a rumble and then you see three panels and it's three panels of Lita Hall. 
and she's transforming from her physical form to the Medusa to her whatever fury outfit that she wears. And then you see, like, he sort of released her from the fugue state that she was in when mm. she thought that Daniel was dead. Yeah, well, now her vengeance has been done, except it wasn't her vengeance at all. And we also, we see the throne with the blood on it. We see Delirium and the Borgol Rantipole has disappeared. We see Nuella riding towards the boundaries of Fairy. We see Loki uh, writhing in the poison. At the bottom of the mountain, we see the ravens, like, re clearly reacting to the death that's, like, about to happen or is happening. Yeah, and then you see in the long panel on the next page, you see death and Morpheus, and they're standing on a tower of stone, and then there's a huge shadow of the kindly ones. Yeah. And you can clearly see the three kindly ones. And then, you know, that's when they know that, you know, they touch and this sort of Michelangelo hand touch and then... There's a big flash of light. Yeah. And they're gone. Yeah, and I think that's sort of mimicked in the world's end when there's that big, you know, there's this huge storm and they finally all start to look out the window because the reality storm has reached the sort of pinnacle and they're like in in the eye of the reality storm that must be at the time exactly when Morpheus is taken away. Yeah. And then all the women sort of react in this, like, very dramatic way. You know, Nuella is confronting Queen Maeve. And then there's a sort of, like, heartwarming, like, interlude of when Delirium finds Barnabas. And she realizes that this mysterious elderly character that was showing up in the... It's a flowers and chocolates guy who keeps showing up. He has Barnabas with him, and she tries to give him something in gratitude, and he's like, I know better than to take from your kind. I, I think all I'd really like is to, you know, maybe hang out with this dog every so often. Uh, and that's very nice. And then it's also like, she's lost two brothers at this point, right? Right. Destruction's gone. Dream is dead. The dog was the gift she got from Destruction because of the end of her quest that she went on with Dream. So it's only fair that she get the dog back at this point. This mini quest that she's on to find Barnabas sort of reflects the journey that she took with Dream to find destruction. It also reflects Dream's journey because as simple as it is, it's a story about one of the Endless trying to make up for a mistake. She let Barnabas, she lost Barnabas and now it is her responsibility to find him again. Even though she's delirium and she should be free of responsibilities, she has a responsibility to Barnabas. Because of the promise she made to destruction. Yeah, and I think the only thing I find to be like a weird misstep, and I guess it's kind of put in there in a comic book sense to sort of set up like future storylines, but I don't think they this story really needed Lucifer and his story. I think Lucifer, I, okay, I like Lucifer in it because of, he, of the, his reflection to dream. And all the characters that have been introduced that have served as reflections or contrast to Dream are there. He's he is like he is another counterpoint to Dream, another guy who gave up and didn't stick around and shirked his responsibilities, and he's dealing with that. He's a vision of what Dream could become if he doesn't make you know the decision that he has to make in this volume. I think that's why he's in it. And I, I think it works with him there. Also I just like seeing seeing Lucifer. He's a great character. I think too I'm this I like the juxtaposition of like 
Rose's story with Zelda. And then the, her story ends with the Zelda's funeral, which I think is sort of a fitting way to sort of end almost this story arc. Yeah, I wanted to say another thing about the Lucifer thing. It's also there to show that, like, to show why Dream couldn't make that decision, that destruction that Lucifer make. Because, like we said, Lucifer's still not happy. And at the end of this, his last scene in this volume, he leaves Lux, too. Yeah. He can't stay anywhere. He's shirked his responsibility, and he's a haunted man without a home. And I think it's also sort of a reflection of this situation with Morpheus and Dream, because Mazikine sort of helps him move out, move on from Lux. So they, yeah. the story ends with them deciding that they're going to move on together and that she's going to help him. So I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So Lucifer I, will return in the Lucifer spinoff. Yes. And it's, that's kind of what I thought. I was like, okay, are they setting up this spinoff? Which makes a lot of sense. I don't know if that they're directly doing that because I don't know how much long after, longer after this the Lucifer spinoff happens. But that's what it feels like. But I also think it serves a thematic purpose in the story. So I don't mind it being there. And in fact, kind of like it. Yeah, and we, and we get the Rose and Hal at the funeral, and it's a big bummer. There's no one there. But you know what? I think they, too, also have a kind of, um, they get a resolution. They get some kind of closure between the two of them. Because it's sort of hanging on. Like, they sort of, after her story arc, after the doll's house, he sort of, they just sort of separate. And there's kind of like, she just goes on her own and she just abandons. She abandons him and she abandons the other people in Mm. the boarding house. So this sort of resolves her sort of guilt that she feels about just leaving them. And I feel like part of Hal's like jerkiness is a reaction to that. Like he, his persona of the job of that, like, Talk talk show, the aggressive super feminist talk show host persona. That I think it's actually kind of the opposite of that. But I think that's his protection yeah. against the vulnerability that he feels. Because he opened up to Rose. Yeah. And then he sort of was rejected in a lot of ways. So I feel like his sort of highly exaggerated version of this woman that he's portraying is a way for him to sort of put on an armor. Just like Lita put on that armor of like the kindly ones to get revenge for what she thought was Daniel's death. Yeah. Also, Zelda, Hal, and Rose are another incursion of the triple goddess. Yes, absolutely. And it's the same thing. We saw that when, with, what was the name of the volume where Thessaly appeared and they went on the moon road? That's a game of you. A game of you. It's the same thing. In that volume, there were also many different manifestations of the, of the Furies. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's slightly ahead of its time, but, you know, this version of the Furies, they're not all necessarily women, or they're not... They're um, not all necessarily cis women. Yes, exactly. So they're they're sort of female manifestations of very different types of what a woman is or what women perceive themselves to be. And so I think we talked a lot about that during that episode, so we don't really need to re suscitate yeah. that but i think it's interesting to say like these fates these furies the kindly ones they have multiple names so why can't they have multiple types of identities but it's also like this is the scene where we find out that rose is pregnant yeah and so we find out that rose is the mother they're mourning the crone and how portrays this character and embodies this character that's a super exaggerated aggressive version of the maiden 
which and is just interesting. But then it's also like they're this version is broken, like Zelda is dead. But she's also pregnant. She's pregnant now, and it's revealed, and we and we're assuming that the father is the one is the solicitor that she had the relationship with mm-hmm. when she was was in England. So then it's also back to there's another sort of link, a circle back to like the what are they, the Crowleys, the Burgesses. Yeah. So there's this sort of link back to this like ancient mystical community that in some way is also involved with the dream. It's also at a different point, at some point in this volume, Rose has embodied each aspect of the Dribble Goddess. Yes. She's the maiden when she's with the old people. She's the crone when she's with Carla and Lita. And now she's the mother when she's with Hal and Zelda. And I think that's sort of, I mean, it's sort of a reflection on the roles that women play throughout their own lives. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what or, gets back to the um, three wives of Adam story from Fables and Reflections, where they're all different, actually different aspects of Eve, and they're different roles that women play in their lives. And in this story, we get to see a super compressed version where Rose plays all three of those roles. I think if you wanted to do a deep scholarly examination of the roles of women in the same man series, that you could find a thousand different connections to this sort of motif of the three, of the kindly one. Yeah. I mean, it's there from volume one because there's the part in 24 Hours where the three women in the diner do like a creepy, like pantomime version of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, in some ways, there's a lot of problematic depictions of women in the same man. We talked about that, about the sort of rape culture and this sort of predatory male, like, concept that's kind of throughout the story. But in a lot of ways, there's a lot of positive female depiction. There's a lot of strong, confident women. There's a lot of aggressive women that are not afraid to take risks, you know, and there's not a lot of, like... There's some victimization, mm-hmm. but I don't, I mean, I think it's more sophisticated, which is why I kind of always think of the salmon as more like a literary comic book as opposed to sort of like a superhero comic book. Yeah, it's definitely not a superhero comic. It's also funny that the two um, superheroes that play major roles in the story are destroyed by it because yeah. it's Lita and Element Woman and both of them being a superhero is portrayed as something awful. Yeah, so back to the actual plot. So this, uh, there's a little interlude where Burgess actually wakes up. Yeah, so finally paying off that thing. He's incredibly cruel to this guy in the first volume. And then in his death, you know, this dude gets a moment of, uh, you know, grace. He's, he is released from his punishment. His husband is still alive, so it's not doesn't even have that tragic, like... Yeah. Like, it's cool. A gay couple makes it to the end of the story and they get to be together. I mean, they're old men and one of them is a weird old wizard, but still. (laughs) Take that, Harry Potter. So then we see Thessaly and she's also dealing with an awakening because she's there and Lita wakes up. I love the fact that she's reading a book that's called When Bad Things Happen to... When Real Things Happen to Imaginary People. Yes. (laughs) So she's making the tea and she's there when Lita wakes up and, of course, Lita now realizes that her son is not dead. But she has lost him. But because she, of her she has lost him. Uh, I think Thessaly says that. She's, yeah, she says, uh, 
I'm called Larissa, and you are a pawn who briefly became a knight or a queen, and you've been taken off the board. Oh, she says she's looking for Daniel, and she said, and then she says, as I understand it, your actions have ensured that you will never see Daniel again. Yeah. And she gives her some tea, and then <laughs> threatens her. Basically says, like, uh, you made a bunch of enemies uh, all at once, and running. I'm one of them. Yeah. So run now. Yeah. It's sad. Her ending is very sad. I mean, again, it's a tragedy. And Dream is not the only tragic figure. It's also her. In in this sort of Greek tragedy, it's a very classic that mm. a mother is wronged or separated from her children or is forced to make a decision that affects her children in a dramatic way. I like this sort of sequence when he when Daniel morphs into the dream aspect. He becomes one of the aspects of dream and it's sort of a scary castle and then you show him and he picks up the stone. It's hard to tell if the ravens are landing on the castle or flying away from it. I think they're flying away from it. Yeah. And he goes to, it's all completely silent until the second to last panel panel. And he picks up the emerald and it transforms into a pendant and he becomes this all white version of dream with black eyes. And this is the panel. Him standing in front of the throne with blood on it and the Corinthian standing behind it and saying Daniel is the vision that Destiny has in Brief Lives. Right. But I think it's also... Except it's reversed, I think. I thought that the Ravens were leaving because the Ravens showed up because there was going to be a battle and there was going to be... They thought it was going to be a death. It's a birth. They have to leave. So they leave. Right. And then I think that like this whole manifestation of the new Daniel as Dream, he... He's all white, so he's the opposite of Morpheus in a lot of ways. But he's also, his dreaming is like multicolored and very um, vibrant. So it's kind of like he's, dream is reborn, but it's also a different dream. Yeah, and then we have one last sequence of the Kindly Ones. It's a repeat of the scene where they have tea and they read the fortune cookie. And it's just like they just go back to their roles. Like this is not means nothing to them what happened here. They're they're an inexorable force of fate. And they read the last fortune cookie and it says, Flowers gathered in the morning, afternoon they blossomed on, still are withered by the evening. You can be me when I'm gone. Yeah, and I think that I mean that's obviously a heavy handed reference to themselves. Yeah. But also to Daniel becoming dream. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's kind of I like this concept of like a fluid, kindly one. Or, like, a kindly ones can be assembled based on the need of what the situation is. Like you said, Rose can play multiple roles as a kindly ones. They can pull together different women to become kindly ones, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. So, overall, what did you think of the volume? Uh, I love this. It's not my favorite story in Sandman. Like, my favorite issue is still Men of Good Fortune. And I think my favorite... Singles like like story arc is probably uh, season of mists, but I really like this. I think this is a masterfully paced comic. I don't think there's a wasted moment in it. There are some missteps. I, I think the Zelda AIDS story is a little clumsy. I think it's it is like perfect conclusion to this story. It draws together all of the themes and characters. It sort of subverts your expectation, but I think still gives you a really satisfying climax. Uh, I think the art's really neat. It's very different than a lot of the art we got, but I I think the ways in which it can be sort of abstract work really well for this story, where so much of it is like a metaphysical journey through 
like ritual and magic, like and dreams. I'm talking specifically about Lita's journey to find the kindly ones. I feel like this art style serves that part really well. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, it it also was not my favorite one, and it did have some problems with some of the plot choices. I know I talked about like the whole thing with the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was sort of poorly written. It just seemed like there's it was problematic. Is probably the best I, my way. only problem with that part is just the the AIDS thing. That feels like kind of a not not exploitative, but like it feels like. Like I said, it's clumsy. It's well-meaning, but clumsy. But I think having Zelda be dying... I mean, I, okay, I don't like that it's like, oh, let's kill another one of... Another lesbian couple. But I think having that, like, very real death happening for Rose and Hal while this very fantastical death is happening in the Dreaming is really important for this story. I I mean, I want to... I, I like that this is a very serious, a very emotionally dense issue uh, volume but i like that there were intercuts of sort of comedy or like positive parts that sort of cut the thickness of the emotional drag of morpheus's death i like that loki and robert good uh, robin Rob- goodville pretend to be cops and they're like these sort of like stereotypes of like detective fiction cops i like that a lot i like the whole interaction of matthew and constantine and then uh, the Corinthian. Uh, Corinthian, I'm sorry, but I wanted to go back to this uh, the issue, the conference issue with the Corinthian, where I say I really like the Corinthian, and you say like why? I think the reason why I like the Corinthian is because he sort of has a redemptive arch in mm. this, and I think that really kind of counterbalances this sort of Clive Barker aspect of like a serial killer with mouth for eye you know that kind of thing it's also it's a i am very suspect of a lot of redemption arcs and i think this one works because it's not just like oh you learned to be nice and you you did a good thing and now you're forgiven it's like he has to suffer dream destroys him utterly emotionally and then metaphysically yes and he has to be he doesn't just get to be better or learn to be better he has to completely remake himself yeah, I agree. And that works for I like the babysitting portion with the with all the male characters who mm-hmm. seem like they're all of these characters in the dreaming who seem like they don't have any compassion end up in a situation where they have to be caring. And I think that's Well, nice. it's like the feminine aspect becomes this monstrous vengeance yeah. force and now all of these masculine characters have to take over this traditionally feminine role. Of being caretakers. And they don't do a perfect job, but they try their best. Yes, and I, I like that. I like that Thessaly finally gets her revenge. And I like the sort of very subtle real reveal that, like, she and Dream have a relationship. And, you know, she's vengeful and he's devastated, you know. So she gets that kind of, any kind of, like dooming which gets her closure that's what she gets it's also very a really good portrait of an ugly breakup because you like yeah that's the i the the platonic ideal of an ugly breakup is where one person comes out uh destroyed and seeking oblivion and the other person comes out furious and seeking revenge yeah and i i mean the first read through i had of this when i read it a couple of years ago i kind of was disappointed that the kindly ones weren't as like badass as I thought they could have been Mm -hmm. but now after reading it a second time and sort of reading it 
and examining the whole thing closely, I realized that it's actually a very sophisticated plot point that they're sort of neutered in a way that they're not as powerful and as vengeful as, I mean, they could have just been like dragons and just ripped him in shreds. And I think this sort of telling the story in a way where he tried to reason with them, it's, it's almost more, it's more sophisticated and more, enriching in the story than if he would have just like you said just been stabbed with a spear made of scorpion tails i think the thing is there this is a weird comparison they're like michael myers like they're they represent inevitability and what's scary about that is not that they're going to teleport into your room and punch your head off it's that they're just never going to stop right and that's what i think it was it was sort of like do you want to die a death of like a thousand pecks like ravens pecking you to death or do you want to like die on your own terms and i think that he made the decision that was best for himself and the dreaming and in proxy for lita hall herself yeah and then it's also like if he had become obsessed with his own survival and with fighting them then he wouldn't have time to make the preparations for daniel to become the new dream and he wouldn't have had a choice in what happens on who takes over his realm or if anyone does so maybe that's the which is what happened maybe that's the problem that destruction was dealing with he, one, did not want anyone else to take on his job as dest- destruction, mm-hmm. but also maybe he didn't have anyone. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Destruction is a deeply lonely character. When we meet him, he's been away for hundreds of years, and he has one friend, and it's a dog. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. And that's the thing. And Dream spends this whole book making a bunch of friends. Yeah. And also, he's already had a glimpse at what happens if that happens. When he was in the bottle, he didn't have a choice in what happened to the Dreaming. And it fell apart, and Brute and Glob destroyed a man's life to try and replace him. And he he doesn't want that to happen again. I also think, like, this whole thing with Lita is extremely complicated. Because maybe Dream was giving Daniel the best outcome that he could have. Because, I mean, he's kind of like an abomination. He does, because you know what he does. He saves Daniel from being a character in a superhero comic, which is the worst fate a human can suffer, especially in a super, uh, becoming a character in a superhero comic in what's about to be the early 2000s. Yeah, because, I mean, he was... It's very metafictional, but I think, like, yeah, Daniel gets to go off and be Dream and not have his hand chopped off. He doesn't ever have to become young Hawkman because he gets to be Morpheus. But also, I think he's kind of... The way that he was conceived and his gestation and when he was born kind of makes him not quite yeah, He shouldn't human. exist. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, even though she doesn't understand this, I feel like when Morpheus saw him and he had this connection with him is because he could relate to him. Yeah. And then making him the new dream was an easy way for him to sort of rescue him. Yeah. And then he seems like... There's no, when he transforms into Dream, there's no, like, there's no indication that it's painful. Yeah. Like, it's not something that he doesn't want. He just literally picks up the stone, and he very calmly becomes Dream. And he, you know, he just very calmly talks to the Corinthian. There's I feel no like explosions, has... there's no sort of ripping, there's no, like... There's no visual cue that it's a painful absorption for this baby to become dream. I also think that's what the ravens flying away signifies. Like I said, the ravens are there because they want a war. They want a death. They're here for pain. And he, there is no pain. That's why they have to leave. 
because the death isn't painful. The death is not violent. There's no corpse. Uh, the other thing like, is, he says he spoke to Daniel, and even though Daniel's a baby, I feel like it has to be a choice. Well, I think it's very clear when Loki and Robin Goodfellow put him in the flame. First of all, they're not putting him in the flame because they want to kill him. They want to mutate him and remove some of the humanity. But he, he very casually goes into the flame. He's holding his Venus. Yeah. He's never terrified. He's not even He's ter- holding his foreshadowing feather. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> even when he's like... He's not terrified of the Corinthian. He's not... Mm-hmm. I mean, even the scene where he accidentally walks into the dreaming and he has a tea party yeah. with Cain and Abel, he's not afraid. Because that's where he's from. He was yes. born there. So I think it's sort of a natural progression. But to get back to Leda with this whole Greek tragedy, there's a lot of instances in Greek literature and stories where a mother has to give her child away. Yeah. There's lots of, like, kings that are sort of... That have to like cut ties with their mother, mm-hmm. and I think that's what Lita's pro- like. That's what Lita's situation is. It's hard for her to come to a grip. That I mean, it's also she- like a lot of like Achilles stuff here with Daniel. Like you know, he goes into the dreaming. It's a lot like him being di- and going into the fire is a lot like being dipped in the river sticks. Yeah, and I think that the reason why she's compulsive about keeping him safe and protected is because deep down she knows. That this is, one, not a normal baby, and two, the time that she has with him is, like, extra, un, you know, ungiven time. Like, because all the time she spent in the dreaming, and when she was pregnant, she was pregnant for, what, five years? Yeah. So, any time that she has with this child, it's extra time that she would not have gotten if she, that child was not in the dreaming. Yeah, yeah. It's also, like, the... The book portrays what happens to her as being horrific and tragic. Like, she, it's not her fault. Thessaly or Larissa or whatever says she was a pawn. Like, mm-hmm. she was used. Which, like, begs the question of, like, was this inevitable for her, too? We know that she's connected to the Furies. We know that the Furies hate Morpheus. Was she always gonna, no matter what happened, end up being their tool to destroy him? I don't think so, because this happened while he was in, when he was... No, I was going to say incarcerated, but when he was trapped yeah. by Burgess. So even if he manipulated what happened when he got out of that captivity, he did not have any hand in the halls being stuck in the dream. No, what I'm saying is, like, was Lita always a knife waiting to be unsheathed by the kindly ones? Probably. Did they make her to be their inevitable weapon? And it, even if it didn't play out exactly like this, it was going to play out some way anyway. I think you're right. Because remember you had said, like, it's never really clear, but desire had a lot to do with what happened. If Lita was, like you said, a knife to the kindly ones, then desire could have put this all in play. Well, I think it also puts, if that's the case, then it makes a contrast between her and Rose, who was also created to be a weapon and escape that fate. Yeah. And Lita couldn't do that, and that's really sad, but that's what happened. Is there any sort of information about what happens to Lita, the character that she is? Uh, I mean, I think she shows back up later in... No, I don't know. Well, Hector comes back, and I think maybe she, she shows back up too. I don't know if the, like, everyone's after you thing ever actually pays off or not. I think that would have been cool. Like, we talk a lot about all, all these spinoffs would have been neat. I would have been 100% down for Leo Hall, Mystic Fugitive. 
But, uh, I mean, she does sort of come back, but she's never really a big deal again. This is, like, probably the most important story she's a part of. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, up next is The Wake. Yes. And that's sort of, like... That's the denouement. Yeah, that's just, that's the wrap-up. You you see a return of the superheroes from the first. Mm-hmm. Martian Manhunter's back. Yeah, and it's, again, like, it's literally The Wake. It's, it's, it is about laying the version of Dream that we have followed for the past 60-some issues. Maybe even long? I don't know. Like, it might, might even be, like, 70 issues? Whatever. It's about laying that version of Dream to the, rest. The Wake starts with... Issue 70. So, yeah. So, 69 issues. Nice. uh, Of this version of Dream. And now we... You know, this is us sort of letting go and moving on. It's interesting because this is kind of a thing that would never happen now. Comic issues are so tightly controlled. Unless this is like a creator-owned comic. I don't think we would ever get to have a whole trade of just... This is what happens after the climax. The whole story's over, and now we're just going to hang out with the characters for a little bit so we can process our, our grief and then move on. Yeah. yeah. Before we do that, though, we're going to read The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker or Bram Stoker? I ha- I've heard it both ways. This, I think, will be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Because... I don't know if anyone knows it, but Nate has complicated feelings about Bram Stoker. I do. I do have complicated feelings about Bram Stoker. And about Bram Stoker, for that matter. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else to say about The Kindly Ones? I mean, it's a big story. It's the longest one in this in this series. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpackage in Did you one. think it dragged at any point? Because I, like I said, I think this is perfectly paced. No, I didn't have a problem with it. I just was expecting different things. But you know what? I felt fulfilled that they weren't what I... Maybe that's a good story. You're expecting something and you get something different and it's just as satisfying, which I think is is a testament to sort of Neil Gaiman's writing and then the visual artists that also make up the series. Because I think like the visualization of the story... And the different art styles and the different coloring sort of enrich this sort of story and make it. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of text, but there's also a lot of visual clues that sort of, you know, input how you feel about the story. Like the ravens and different things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the most clear part where you get this indication of like something like American gods is coming along because you start oh, the to see stuff. Yeah. You start to see like the sort of, um, I mean the ending concept of, of like these gods manipulating things that are happening in the waking and the dream world. It's also like the Amer- ending of American gods is kind of kindly ones 2.0 with Odin taking the role of dream and the, the, I mean, the very end of American Gods, spoiler alerts, also deals with this, like, Shadow meets another incarnation of Odin. And they have a very similar conversation to the conversation that uh, Matthew and Dream have about the gem. And I think this sort of, the whole depiction of Loki, the visual con- depiction of Loki really enriches the story. Because yeah. the style that Loki is drawn in really brings you back to the other characters like Lucian and 
even Constantine at some point. So I think that really helps to sort of reinforce the story. Yeah. All right. Uh, spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Thank you.